You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 564. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 4th of April, 2023. In today's episode, a flight in Papua New Guinea loses cabin pressure, causing passenger injuries. Richard Branson's Virgin Orbit satellite launching business lays off most of its workers. More news and your feedback. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 564 is ready for pushback. You are Radio Roger, an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one new all-new station in the nation, 1010 Winds, on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, the pilot at a major legacy airline based somewhere in the U.S. of A. And joining me from across the pond in... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and hi, everybody. Great to be back on, and uh, it's going to be uh, a good show, I've decided. Oh, I'm glad it is. Any, uh, any bad weather you're getting from uh, the United States of America? Not today. No, okay. it's been sunny. That's good to and hear. You must occasionally have good weather. Though. Occasionally, we'll send you some good <laughs> stuff. Uh, also joining us from his home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, uh, A&P mechanic, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry. It's Nick Camacho. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. Uh, looking forward to it. All right. And also joining us from a, a place... To stand in lots of snow, retired financier, aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. All the snow has finally melted. I think we're on our way to spring now. Yay. And I got my snow tires off yesterday. I checked the power in your freezer, Liz. You don't want everything to melt. Yeah. Yeah, you do you have to actually turn your refrigerator slash freezer on during the wintertime up there or just leave the no, door? No, I just throw it all outside on the back. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, that's have a one good of the show, advantages. guys. Okay. Cheers. See you, Liz. All right. Um, let's uh, go ahead and uh, do some aviation news. What do you think? Good.
stand by for news. Now we'll start right off from the news source Aviation Herald, avherald.com. An air... (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I practiced this even before we started the show. Uh, Air New Guinea, Fokker 70, registration Papa 2, Alpha November Tango, performing flight 188 from Port Moresby to Mount Hagen, Papua New Guinea, with 67 passengers and four crew, had been on approach to Mount Hagen, but could not land at Mount Hagen due to weather conditions. And landing on top of a mountain? And returned to Port Moresby. Yeah, well, it's, uh, that country is very mountainous, Liz, and you have to know how to land on the top of a mountain. Um, the aircraft climbed to flight level 310 en route, but suffered the loss of cabin pressure. The aircraft performed a relatively normal approach to Port Moresby, descending through 10,000 feet about 14 minutes after leaving flight level 310, landed on runway 14 left about two hours, 10 minutes past departure time. Four passengers sustained serious 18 passengers minor injuries. Papua New Guinea's PIC, that must be their investigatory agency, reported that they were informed about the occurrence only two days later and wrote, quote, on disembarking the aircraft at Jackson's airport, a passenger of the occurrence flight alerted Air New Guinea's customer service that a few passengers from the flight were bleeding from the ears and the nose. Yee. On assessing, yeah, on assessing the injured passengers, uh, Air New Guinea customer service then activated a response plan and had the injured passengers transported to Pacific International Hospital for further medical assessment. It was reported that a total of 22 persons were injured. Seven had serious injuries and were admitted. Six were under a review and nine were discharged from the hospital. Uh, On March 22nd, 2023, uh, Papua New Guinea's AIC released their preliminary report summarizing the sequence of events. The co-pilot occupying the right seat was pilot flying. The pilot in command who was in the left seat was the pilot monitoring flight crew had decided to return to Jackson's after observing that the weather at Mount Hagen Airport, the planned destination, was not suitable for an approach and landing. The flight data recorder showed that the aircraft had originally departed from Jackson's Airport at 1407 local. The flight crew stated during an interview that they arrived overhead Mount Hagen Airport at 1500. The flight crew then reported on approach for landing into Mount Hagen Airport. They elected to maintain 8,000 feet above sea level and visually hold to the west of the airfield over the Mount Hagen Township due to the prevailing wind conditions in the circuit. The hold lasted for about eight minutes. When interviewed, the flight crew stated that given the local wind conditions observed in the circuit during the hold, a safe landing was not possible, and therefore a decision was made to return to Jackson's airport. Recorded uh, data showed that the aircraft climbed to a cruising altitude of 31,000 feet above mean sea level and began tracking back to Jackson's. About 100 nautical miles from Jackson's, the crew commenced their descent. The crew stated that a track deviation of 30 nautical miles right of track was required to keep clear of en route weather. Approaching 10,000 feet on descent into Jackson's, the crew actioned the Fokker 70 normal procedures before approach check. Flight crew stated that during uh, during the interview that they had subsequently noticed that the landing elevation setting had not been set for an arrival into Jackson's, but was Instead, still at about 5,500 feet, which they initially set for Mount Hagen Airport. The crew stated in an interview that since there was a need to increase the rate of pressurizing the cabin on descent, the Fokker 70 Quick Reference Handbook, uh, Abnormal Procedures for Manual Cabin Pressurization Control Procedure, was executed. 
I guess I didn't want to wait for the automatic system to take care of it. Uh, then they continue with the approach for landing uh, into Jackson's airport via the ILS procedure for runway 14 left. The crew stated that once the aircraft was established on final approach, the cabin pressure differential indicated about 6 PSID. Uh, that's that's still quite a that's quite a lot. Considering the normal maximum before the safety valve blows by 8 PSI, right. that's, uh, you've got it well pumped up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, normal cruise conditions, I think for most air, air transport aircraft, uh, probably in the 7 and a half-ish range or something like that as nick mentioned if, you, yep. if you're going up pretty high close to the service ceiling of the aircraft uh, anything approaching eight is probably too high yeah or getting there anyway eventually. yeah yeah so six is significant uh so let's see they uh when they noticed it um they um let's see seeing that the indication was above the maximum allowable cab- cabin differential for landing, which is 0.13. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the crew terminated the approach different. and initiated a go-around about 1,600 uh, local time from 1,000 feet chaps. straight ahead over runway 14 left. Yep. The aircraft climbed a runway heading to 2,500 feet AGL and requested uh, clearance from ATC to conduct a right turn to track and visually hold at 2,500 feet in the Dalgo training area. Uh, ATC provided the clearance as requested by the crew. The aircraft established in this area. Uh, the crew reportedly actioned the QRH abnormal procedure for reduced cabin pressure differential procedure. Hmm. That seems like the opposite of what they should have <laughs> right? Well, yeah. Wouldn't you go for the not reduced, but um, increased cabin pressure differential procedure? Well, I'd have thought so, but mm-hmm. you know, if, sometimes if pressurization can kind of be confusing. <laughs> it can actually, yeah. It's 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 not uh, logical or doesn't no. appear logical. No, anytime you go, honestly, anytime you're in a situation where you have to manually control the pressurization and not let the auto auto system work, it's it's dangerous. <laughs> it's yeah, like you've really huh? got to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, they reportedly conducted um, a normal approach, landed on runway 14 left at 1620 local time. The crew stayed a taxi to the parking bay where the engines were shut down. Uh, a normal disembarkation procedure was followed and all passengers disembarked, which is normal. According to customer <laughs> services, duty officers' statements provided to the AIC, four passengers passengers were reported to have sustained serious injuries, 18 minor injuries for all crew and the remaining 45 passengers. No injuries were reported. Uh, the injuries were reported to have been sustained during flight operations at Jackson's uh, aerodrome area as a result of a sudden pressurization event. Okay, time for analysis. Um, Captain Nick, <laughs> uh, what oh. the heck... <laughs> were they doing what did they do wrong here i mean i know we don't know for uh, sure because it's uh, just it, the initial it, report it all comes from the diversion doesn't it because having set their airport elevation for where they intend to land at five and a half thousand feet if they'd landed there the um automatic uh, system would have fi- been fine and when they landed the uh the pressure inside the cabin and the pressure outside the cabin would have been the same and all would have been good. But now they've decided not to land there, which is a good decision. Mm -hmm. But when you divert, you've got to remember, amongst all the other things that you have to do when you divert, 
or basically this time return to the original, is to make sure you set that airfield elevation knob, or in the case of uh, an Airbus, it's just that it's the altitude of your destination airport. So you must make sure that your destination destination airport is now that your new destination back to port mosby um and then the automatic system will adjust for that new altitude um because they hadn't done that so that as they were coming towards port mosby and they were on the uh, descent um the pressurization system was still trying to keep the cabin pressurized as if they were landing halfway up a mountain at um, their original uh, destination mount mount das hagen or so, hagen das or hagen das damn i got that wrong didn't I? <laughs> it's funnier when you say it in that order <laughs> mount hagen das yes exactly right um so they, they ended up with this mismatch uh, they spotted it which was great uh, and because you know, if they'd landed, the the dot the doors for the pressurization system would have been driven fully open, and they've dumped that huge amount of pressure, and that probably would have been even worse than what did happen. So they now are in the situation where they're going to manually bring the cabin pressure down to one that equals more or less sea level where they're going to land. So <laughs> they've got a um, I don't know quite how you do it in this airplane because uh, we would uh, just adjusted the automatics through the um, the flight computers. Uh, so I don't know quite. I'm assuming they had a either they manually moved the new uh, airport elevation or they manually moved the dump valves that regulate the pressure in the cabin. Whatever they did, they did it a bit fast. You've got to let that pressure come slowly down um, because when their passengers have been at this at altitude, uh, every every uh, little space inside, particularly I'm pointing to my head because that's where the most painful bits are, mm. every little space inside your head, and you've got lots of them, all your sinuses, the little air spaces, your inner ear around your uh, eardrum. There are air spaces either side of that eardrum. They've all got to be equalized. You've got to allow some time for that pressure to gently equalize. Otherwise, things tend to give way. Your sinuses suddenly become very painful, and uh, they they can bleed quite badly. Um, or and you risk bursting an eardrum. Uh, which can be extremely painful. And by the sounds of it, that might have been what happened to some people. Um, people who don't fly regularly would not be as familiar as we as pilots are with the Valsalva maneuver, which is um, where you eat force air through your the back of your nose, into your ears, inner ears, um, down the eustachian tubes by uh, holding your nose and blowing against the pressure and forcing air down there. And that's what you do if you're a pilot to quickly equalize the pressure either side of your eardrum. Uh, they probably wouldn't know how to do that. Uh, you can get around it by swallowing. It's not as efficient, but it works. Chewing a, that's why you get boiled sweets on airplanes sometimes, not just to choke on, but <laughs> make you swallow and uh, help equalize the pressure boiled sounds sweets. like uh, yeah. boiled boiled sweets. Sweets. Yes. oh hard, hard candy candies. oh okay okay hard i've never heard candy. that term before okay 
Okay. Well, very British. <laughs> uh, wow. Yes, that's what we call them. I thought, anyway. were, I thought we were talking, talking about that uh, Gujia stuff from India, you know, the holy <laughs> yes. festival that we talked about on the last show. I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, it looks like they, uh, they whatever they did with their manual actions, uh, they did it a bit fast and uh, changed that pressure too fast for their passengers to cope with. Um, so not good. Yeah. Not so good. I'm- And what's more, I didn't think they voluntarily put in an accident report I have a feeling they just kind of carried on regardless. Uh, I'm, yeah, maybe nobody will they... Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but luckily the ground service agent saw these bleeding passengers <laughs> as they dripped That's off the airplane. <laughs> well, I don't know. It could and be help, normal, help Liz, if, uh, if you're not very good at controlling pressurization like on a, on a regular basis. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's very easy <clears throat> to actually do it the wrong way uh, and uh, you know, pump more air in instead of letting air out. Or in this case, the cabin would have been at lower pressure than the sea level. So you've got to, um, you know, let air out. Yep. Yeah. It's, yeah, the confusing part that they're talking about is as you go up in altitude, the pressure goes down, right? So you need your delta pressure to go up as you go up in altitude delta and P? the atmospheric pressure comes down to maintain an equivalent pressure of 8,000 feet or whatever the cabin uh, sustains. Did you say something? Did you say Delta P? He did. Delta P. Very good. (laughs) We have the box checked for this episode. Delta P procedure complete. (laughs) Um, So I, while you were explaining all this, uh, Captain Nick, I thought, you know, Jeff, Jeff, you should probably search for the Fokker 70 uh, QRH um, and the procedure for um, manual depressurization. And uh, that's what I did. And I found, I don't know if this is official or not, but it looks official. Um, And uh, abnormal procedures for manual cabin pressurization control. Now, I don't think I don't think that's what they referred to. They do have a manual depressurization procedure, even though the wording in the narrative of the um, Aviation Herald uh, report was different because the crew had said that they actioned the reduced cabin pressure differential procedure, which doesn't even seem to make any sense to me uh, when I Uh say it. I think the first one they did was the abnormal procedures for manual cabin pressurization okay. control procedure. So in this uh, procedure, uh, if you want to climb, then you put the manual control lever up and then the manual rate control as required. This sounds very much like the uh, Mad Dog system. Uh, we had a, um, a, a like a wheel, almost like a trim wheel over there on the right side. Um, that we could move to open and close the valve manually. There's actually cables that go all the way back to the back of the uh, airplane, and you're actually moving, <laughs> opening up and closing a door <laughs> manually. Now, normally the auto system uses that configuration with the pulleys and the cables and everything. Hey, don't laugh. It works. Most it sounds of like the a time. C-47 set. That's not pressure. It's, just, it's very, probably very similar to the C-47, <laughs> <Yeah>. actually. <laughs> um, 
and then but but if you uh, oh, anyway so that's if you climb you want to get the manual control lever up and then if you're doing a descent the the manual control lever uh, i'm saying lever and lever uh down manual rate control is required you can adjust the rate of uh of climb or descent uh on the manual rate control and then when the cabin altitude reaches landing altitude manual control lever mid position and then before landing manual control lever up, which I assume is just completely opening up the uh, the outflow valve completely, and now you're just at ambient pressure, which is what the auto system would have done for you if it was working. Um, the manual depressurization procedure um, is a little bit di- different. It says initiate descent to 10,000 feet, and then the pressurization control manual, and then uh, the manual control lever up, and then you adjust the manual rate control as well. And when the cabin altitude reaches 9,000 feet, then you put the manual control lever back to the mid position, blah, blah, blah. So in other words, that last nine, 10,000 feet, until if, if you're landing at sea level, um, everything should uh, just basically equalize, and hopefully nobody's ears and noses are bleeding. Um, so once in um, a few years back when I was still flying the Mad Dog, taking off out of Atlanta and going through about 10,000 feet, you know, like right away, it was just like something didn't feel right. You know, especially if you fly a lot, you you know what it's supposed to feel like. And when anything is going on with the pressurization system, and I'm sure Captain Nick will go, yeah, you know, you, you immediately sense something's going on with the pressure. You immediately look at your pressurization panel and your pressurization schematic if you have that kind of a system with you know fancy screens as i do now but the mad dog didn't have any of that and so i told the um first officer as i I said i'm going to level at 10 i'm going to talk to air traffic control let them know we're going to stop our climb because we have a pressurization uh, system issue and i want you to get the checklist out for that and i want you to start managing the uh, the pressurization in the in the manual mode Oh my gosh. I mean, like, I, I don't know why my nose and ears didn't start bleeding because I think he was doing the opposite of what he was supposed to be doing. So he was actually, you know, closing the outflow valve instead of going the other way and trying to equalize, you know, I, I finally got to the point where I couldn't stand it anymore. And I said, okay, whatever his name was, I don't remember who I was flying with. I said, you have the airplane. This is what we're doing. Stay here at this altitude, get, you know, vectors back to the airport. I'm going to take over the manual pressurization. And it was not easy to do, but at least I was going in the correct direction to, to equalize the pressure and open up the uh, outflow valve and everything else. But it was not, not a lot of fun at all. That's one of those things where if that happens to, uh, and we have two, our, most of the airplanes I've flown, they're like two automatic pressurization controller so if one stops and then the next one takes over for it but if they both stop obviously now you're in a manual pressurization uh, situation and to me that's like emergency procedure Uh, you don't want to do you never want to take an airplane i mean i'll refuse an airplane if neither of the auto pressurization system controllers are working i'm just not going to do it it's just too much liability in my opinion that i'm going to break people's eardrums in the back Uh, and they normally don't you know, that in that situation would probably be a, a ferry flight with without passengers if they were purposely dispatching you like that. But anyway, um, yeah, just wanted to share my little, you know, experience with manual <laughs> yeah, pressure. And I mean, it's like if, of all the things that could go wrong with an airplane, and that gives me the heebie-jeebies the, the most 
as, as manual pressurization. Brad has like, a good comment here, Jeff. All right. Brad says this crew was under a lot of pressure. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, wait. Very I should have good. had my rim shot ready. Oh. There we go. <laughs> and super, oh. super Fred, super Fred blew his student sinuses out. <laughs> oh, gosh. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. That's no good. I've heard of stories where people have had sinus lockups or blockages or whatever, and they actually had to do the, like the, the obviously the medical yeah, version of drill, a drill, drill, <laughs> drill bit, drill like right into your sinus cavity to relieve the pressure. Yeah. 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 Not pleasant. Okay. Um, a control room is telling us to skip the next item. And uh, so we are going to uh, see, uh, unless we want to say anything else. And Nick, Nick C., do you want to add or subtract anything about the pressurization incident? incident? No, just uh, just wanted to reiterate how confusing it was when you started reading that procedure out of their QRH. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just not logical how you're moving around the controls. So, yeah, it's almost I, like I the op- it's like the opposite of what you. So he's like, okay, we I want to I want to go this direction with it, and you think, okay, that's a climb, but no, 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 it's not not a climb. It's a descent, you know. Right. It's, you're, and I, you, you know, to wrap you, your like, head around it is like uh, you oh. look at it and like to climb. It says manual control over up, and so you would think as you're climbing, you're Closing a valve, right, mm-hmm. to maintain more pressure. Right. And then descending, control over down or open. But then before landing, you put the manual control over in the climb position, basically. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Super yeah. confusing. It is. It honestly is. <laughs> <laughs> and I think um, the airplane, uh, on the Mad Dog, I think we had to remember to reset the altitude uh, for wherever we're going to land. Um, and in the uh, airplane I'm flying now, the 717, um, it's like what Nick was saying with the FMS. If you, when you put in the divert airport information, then it automatically sends that information to the auto controller and it takes care of all that stuff. And you just kind yeah, of keep your fingers we, we crossed. We still have to do a manual check on the screens yeah. that the airport elevation is correct for the airport we're about to land at to make sure that we've got the right data in. So it's just one of the additional checks we do on the approach. And, you know, a lot of, you know, most of the places we fly, and probably the same with you, Nick, um, the landing elevations are probably not that significantly different. And there are times when, you know, you, like when you land and all of a sudden your ears start, you know, like changing rapidly. You go, what, what the heck? You know, obviously something, the auto controller didn't have the right, altitude information we forgot to do something probably <laughs> but but it just kind of opened up the valve and then everything equalized and you go okay well let's don't let's don't do that again okay um item c final report um this is again from the aviation herald uh network australia foker 100 another foker uh, registration Victor Hotel, November Hotel Victor, performing flight 1616 from Perth in Western Australia to Parabadu. H- how do you say that, Nick? Parabadu? Burdu? Parabadu? Well, it'll either be Parabadu or Paraburdu. Paraburdu. Okay. Also in Western Australia. Uh, <laughs> Paraburdu. Try what saying was? it with an Australian accident. accent. Sorry. I can't. I don't, ha- I don't know. How to- oh, okay. That sounds Parabadu. good. Ah. Yeah, that's probably it. I, I wouldn't know, but that oh, sounds yeah. good. 
Well, anyway, this Fokker 100 had 92 passengers, five crew. They were on approach to Para Bardu. Uh, Bardu. Runway. That's an Indian I, accent. I know. I'm sorry. I can't do. I cannot do an Australian accent. I really can't. I never do. Okay. Uh, from the P Airport's runway six, but went around at 7:44 local time. The aircraft climbed to 5,000 feet, positioned for an approach to runway 24, but again needed to go around. So they came in at first runway six, and then they okay, their second shot was uh, runway 24, and then the aircraft climbed to 4,000 feet, attempted another approach to runway six, but again they needed to, to go around. The third time, the aircraft uh, climbed to 6,500 feet, positioned for an approach to runway 24, and continued to landing at 844. Uh, so what's the problem? Uh, well, uh, they, at minimums, they couldn't see anything that they were required to see, like the runway approach lights or anything. <laughs> um, yeah, so no visual contact had been established. The uh, Australian Transportation Safety Bureau reported that during a fourth attempt, at an instrument approach at Paraburdu Airport, Paraburdu, and something too. The flight crew continued the descent below the approach minima before becoming visual and landing. As part of the investigation, uh, the ATSB interviewed the flight crew, reviewed cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder data, operating procedures, flight planning information, etc. Uh, the occurrence was rated a serious incident and is being investigated. And they're expecting a report third quarter of 2022. Well, here we are. It's probably the first quarter of 2023. This happened, by the way, November 22nd of 2021. And the final report has been issued. Contributing factors, the flight crew lost confidence in their flight plan weather forecast after two missed approaches. (laughs) I probably would have lost confidence before the two missed approaches, (laughs) but they're really not confident. Uh, Without immediate access to actual weather information, they elected to conduct further approaches instead of diverting. After the third missed approach, the flight crew had insufficient fuel to divert to a suitable airport and were committed to landing in conditions below landing uh, minimums due to the continuing deteriorating cloud base. The actual weather conditions encountered by the flight crew on arrival at Paraburdu Airport were worse than the flight plan forecast, obviously below landing minima and deteriorating. This event was difficult to forecast accurately due to the lack of observed lower cloud satellite imagery and meteorological modeling limitations. The aircraft was not fitted with an operational aircraft communications addressing and reporting system, ACARS. So I guess they normally have one, but this wasn't out, not working. And they were out of range of the Mikathara Automatic Enroute Information Service. Uh, while holding at Parabdu Airport. Therefore, the flight crew were reliant on air traffic control to assess the actual weather information for the alternate aerodromes. Um, Anyway, a network aviation, the company, the the airline, I guess, the operator of this, uh, did not provide their flight crew with a diversion decision-making procedure for the circumstances of their flights encountered unforecast weather below landing minima, this increased the risk that the flight crew would not anticipate and be adequately prepared for a diversion. Uh, network aviation did not include the threat of unforecast weather below landing minima in their controlled flight into terrain risk assessments. This increased the risk that controls required to maintain this threat would not be developed, monitored, and reviewed at a management level. So this is a safety issue they are calling out. Uh, the, the flight crew did not convey a sense of urgency to air traffic control when they requested the actual weather information for Newman Airport, which is, I guess, their diversion airport. 
This, combined with the controller's workload at the time, resulted in a delay of about 15 minutes before the information was offered. However, Newman Airport had a holding fuel requirement that the flight could not comply with. And as the actual weather did not include an improvement of conditions, it's unlikely that this information would have influenced their decision to divert. Um, okay, anyway. Um, so when they first came in, they land, they, they attempted um, a, a landing on, uh, what is it, runway six, I think they started out. And then I think they noticed that there was a little bit of a tailwind. And they actually did get a little glimpse of the runway at that point, but they were not in a position to continue to, uh, a normal descent and a safe landing. So they did the, they made the right decision and they went around. Uh, so the second time, the reason why they came back the other direction was that, okay, now they're going to be aligned with the wind. It's going to be a little bit safer. However, the, uh, the weather was as bad or worse going into that direction. So, um, Looks like if you're wondering uh, what, how low did they go? How low did they go? And I believe it said just under 300 feet, 200 and was it 297? I think I remember the numbers. Uh, 293. 93. With uh, a minimum descent altitude on that runway, a decision height was 584. Wow. So a couple hundred feet gone, yeah. below. Yeah. Um, well. And, I, and I, this is an ILS approach, right? Or was it a... Well, I'm, no, minimum descent altitude, that'll be a non-precision oh, approach. I non-precision guess. approach. So they're yep. basically doing their own um, kind of like descent procedure Vertical once they descent. went below that the minimum is, descent yeah. altitude. And uh, yeah, that's pretty dicey. Uh, but I, I think at this point, they really didn't... They got themselves into a a corner and they they had to do this otherwise otherwise just go find some place to crash you know so they had to try to get the airplane on the ground right yeah they they'd, they'd worked themselves into a corner they they had to break the regulations and go below their minima because that was the only alternative uh, course of action um it's an interesting one this one because uh you know you do ask yourself um just because the weather at my destination airfield isn't as forecast, what about the weather forecast for all the other airfields that I am considering, basically my diversion airfields? Um, and um, uh, are they, they said they lost confidence in the forecast. Well, these airports are quite a long way apart. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, if that is justified. Um, uh, and particularly when they they say, well, we haven't got hey cars. Uh, well, you've got an air traffic controller there, and if you declare you've got a problem, I, you know, I'm, if I don't get a, I need a decent weather forecast because I'm getting close to fuel minimums. Uh, the guy will drop what he's doing and try and sort you out. He's got a telephone. That's all, that's all he needs. Uh, and um, the their number one diversion or their primary diversion was um, actually. Uh, quite wide open. I, I I saw the the forecast somewhere in this. It's a really long uh, um, report. This and it was about ten miles and ten thousand feet. You know, cloud and visibility. So it was pretty much you know wide open. So uh, and they sh they could have made the decision up to and including going around twice because that's when they sort of reach the fuel that they would have to go off to their diversion. Once they committed themselves to a third approach in 
conditions that were getting progressively worse, they had committed themselves to the airfield they were at then. They couldn't then divert. So uh, there you go. Yeah, I think they said that uh, had they initiated the divert after their second miss, they would have had sufficient fuel. But once they committed to that third approach, they basically said, yeah, okay, it's over. game over. You're going to have to try to land here. Um, yeah. Let's see. I was going to uh, share. Uh, I was just kind of curious. I'm thinking, well, I don't really know. I know where Perth is um, in Western Australia, but I did. I don't know where that other place oh, is. Parabadu uh, is about uh, – it's, it's north of them by – halfway up australia <laughs> well let me show you i'm going to share oh, it with you um yeah let's uh you know if i'm wondering and then i'm sure that others out there might want to know and, and so I there we go there hey, now that's the road you, you would take obviously i'm using google maps uh, <laughs> so i don't think they'd take oh, that they, flight were path. they drunk these parts it's <laughs> 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 a funny old flight track well it was just the first thing that came to my mind when you're like how do i no, figure no, this out i just went fine. to google maps of course it's normally used to me driving and not flying <laughs> yeah, actually and i think a, their uh, their uh, primary diversion which is caratha i think is, is north on the coast uh, underneath the campgrounds um little button yeah. there yeah oh yeah okay. that's where that one is oh even further and I, yeah okay um and they they do go at some length into the conditions that cause the um the deteriorating weather at their destination Parabadu. um and they go into some length and it went straight over my head and i know a bit about met but not a lot and um, you know they they really did have a, a weird situation there. So whether that it wasn't like there was a huge front going through that was going to hit all the airfields around them. I think it was a, a, a problem particular to their destination. Um, their other airfield was on the coast and a completely different type of uh, air mass, but. Anyway, uh, the fact was they, they got away with it, didn't they? They made a yeah. good approach when they came out of cloud. They could see the runway. They were at the right height. So they actually, when it comes to piloting skills, I think they did a, a, a really good job. Um, mm -hmm. It takes me back to the simulator I flew when uh, I was being assessed for the command course to become a captain. And I ended up doing a similar sort of thing. I was doing a two-engined approach in a four-engine airplane into Boston uh, with no air traffic control, at least no radar. Everything was procedural, and they'd give me an NDB approach because all the ILSs were broken. It was one of those really realistic scenarios I ended up. So I was doing an NDB approach. Oh. Um, on only two engines, the the two engine committal height for that is 500 feet, and the minima was a little below that, so I couldn't see the runway at the at the two engine committal height. So I committed to land, and when I got to the decision height or MDA, I couldn't see the runway. So what what do you do then? <laughs> just hold on like hold on, on to your hands assessment. Yeah, yeah exactly right that's exactly what i did i held on and 100 feet later i saw the airfield and we landed so you know that was okay and 
the, the guy raised his eyebrows, but I passed, so that's fair enough. Okay. Well, that's, but so, that's you know, you sometimes, <laughs> exactly. Sometimes, uh, as a captain, rules are for um, when you don't have an emergency. Suckers. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in an, an emergency situation, you're perfectly permitted to throw all the rules out the window mm -hmm. and do what you think is best to get the airplane safely on the ground. Um, now, and, please but tell so me that you can both engines were out afterwards. on the same side, were they? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh. <laughs> I've just Man. been through a four-engine flame-out, oh. which is another really realistic thing that happens These to people you. People are evil. Uh, yeah, and I, he'd only given me two engines back uh, when they were both on mm. the same side. Anyway, yeah. by the by. Well, yes, well done, Captain. Well done. <laughs> well, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't fishing for compliments, but I was just saying there are times when it is justified. Yes. And if you're going to do it, make sure you do it carefully uh, like these guys did. Um, so, Got a co comment from Brad, uh, the Sultan of Wings. Crikey. <laughs> <laughs> is that an Australian accent? That was very good. Yeah. Crikey. Crikey. Uh, okay. Well. As you said, uh, you know, they, they got the airplane on the ground safely, but uh, yep. there were definitely some mistakes made, and uh, they did the best with their yeah. situation. I think their decision-making process a little earlier on when they had some gas mm -hmm. uh, probably could have been polished a bit. Speaking of gas, whew, I don't know what I <laughs> ate for lunch. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, uh, I was I was trying to make that into some kind of a, a, a segue, but it's not really working at all because there's nothing here on there in our news that has anything to do with gas. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, shall I continue? Uh, I would say Liz? D okay. and uh, F for sure. All okay. right, D and F. Okay, uh, D. Uh, another AviationHerald.com article. Uh, final report. A uh, 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 hop. H O P. Exclamation point! Uh, Canadair Hop CRJ one thousand on. Oh, I've never heard of a CRJ one thousand. Must be bigger than the uh, nine hundred, huh? On behalf of Air France, registration Foxtrot Hotel Mike Lima Delta, performing flight sixteen thirty two from Lyon to Nantes, France. Nantes. Nantes. Gosh darn it! I thought I had it. Uh, was on approach to Nantes runway 21 when ATC cleared the aircraft to descend to 3,000 feet at QNH 1002 hectopascals. Uh, the crew, however, read back 1021, uh, descended to 3,000 feet on that QNH, the in error one, and continued the approach. Subsequently, a minimum safe altitude warning, an MSAW, Activated, the crew corrected and continued for a safe landing on runway 21. The, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, French, uh, why is it not working? Hmm, okay, hang on. The French Bureau d'enquête et d'analyse uh, said that this yeah. was an, a, a serious incident and opened an investigation on the 31st of March 2023. I mean, literally just a couple of days ago. Uh, the final I'm report was released. You are Liz. You're on it. Uh, Liz, like every, like, I think she's connected directly to all these, uh, investigation databases I'm, and I'm she gets serving on each committee. Oh, uh, you're serving on each committee. Wow. Right. I didn't realize. And, and you probably have like notifications on your phone that ring when you get, I do. The, okay. Um, 
Anyway, let's see what the uh, final report says. The following factors may have contributed to the altimeter setting error. A high workload and the crew being excessively focused on the weather conditions associated with the ongoing storm, probably one of those storms that came over from the United States, uh, to the detriment <laughs> of the application of the standard procedure, which included checking the consistency of the QNH value provided by the ATC against another source of information. Uh, the approach controller being distracted due to an imminent conflict in another sector of his area of responsibility for which he was preparing the resolution. As a consequence, the controller did not identify that the crew incorrectly read back the altimeter setting. Ding. That's uh, important. Uh, the following factors may have contributed to the non-detection of the erroneous final path, the inherent limitations of the Barrow VNAV function in the event of an altimeter setting error, the absence of appropriate safety measures in such situations, in particular the consistency check procedure based on the radio altimeter value, appears to be ineffective given the operational context at this point of the flight. Now, just a, an aside, the radio altimeter for most airplanes that, that I've flown doesn't really activate until about 2,500 feet above the ground. So, you know, if, if, if the radio altimeter is active, uh, then... You know, you can do that consistency check, but if you're above it, you know, you're, you don't really know if that's a, a good value or not. Uh, Greg Peterson says, I know that what QNH is, but what does QNH stand for? Um, Captain <laughs> it's Nick. A, it's a Q code. It doesn't stand, doesn't stand for anything. Uh, it, it is literally a code that means uh, altimeter setting that gives your uh, height above uh, sea level. Yeah, probably, I would imagine, doesn't it stand for something? Because I know like QFE is uh, field elevation is what, you know. The, well, I think they might have tried to give it something like that. It's probably but, some French um, words that we just don't Google, understand. Google, Google says oh. it stands for Q nautical height. Nautical height. indicating altitude at above height above sea, sea level. level. Wow. Well, I've heard people give an awful lot of uh, <clears throat> sort of mnemonics of trying to remember oh, what not the, really the true. QFE <laughs> is and QNH is. And, ah. um, the, you know, there's there's a Q code for standard allometer setting. I can't remember what that one is. Someone help me out. Um, anyway. Standard. Um, yeah, I've forgotten to. QNE? Oh, that sounds good. That, that sounds, sounds right. useful. There's also a Q code for a, a Metman's uh, pressure setting, which is more accurate than what? QNH. So <laughs> there are a number of these ones. Now, mm. most of them have fallen out of use, but they all did exist, and there were so many of them, they couldn't really match the letters with a logical um, phrase. Yeah, stand by. But you can use uh, control room QNH, nautical height, okay. if you want. Control room. Uh, yeah, would you please uh, kick out uh, Greg Peterson from the uh, live audience <laughs> ask, asking us questions way, in the if, middle of the show uh, that if, we don't know the answer to? It's not fair. If NH stands for nautical height, what's the Q stand for? Queen's nautical height. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be it. We don't use it over here. <laughs> oh, my. You know what? We're going to get a lot of feedback query, now. Query nautical yeah. height? Query? Query? Yeah. Like query, just to be yeah, sure yeah, that you yeah. don't think I'm saying something inappropriate. No, query. query. Okay. Um, I don't know. Let's get. You know, I think we've we've gone into a uh, sunk into a rabbit hole, and uh, yeah, we, we need Greg to pull ourselves. Yes, yeah, it's, it's Greg. Thanks, Greg. 
Yeah. yeah. Why is he still there, Liz? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'm just kidding. Don't don't kick him out. Um, so, um, I don't know. What else do we want to say about this? I know. Uh, we want to say do. that for each uh, millibar of pressure you get wrong, you're going to have an error of about thirty feet as a rule of thumb. Hmm. So they had um, what nineteen millibars error 19 high so 10 would be about 300 feet 19 would be about uh, 560 570 feet and this says so that is 530 a big feet error. yeah on the on the oh, 530 yeah okay 30 30 foot is only an approximation yeah but it's, right. it's a nice round wow. number but that's that's so good that's you're 530 lot. feet lower than you think you are yes no, and that's the big part the yeah. big point if you try and make an approach flying 530 feet lower than you should uh and you don't find the cor the correction you don't spot it on the radar you're going to hit the ground about two miles short of the runway <laughs> mm. that's when the radio altimeter really comes into play <laughs> yes it does yeah. what's the radio altimeter like on the c47 nick <laughs> do you have one uh no, I think it's just our iPad. They just use like a, a can with a string on the end of it, and they put some rocks in it, <laughs> yeah. give it some Hang weight. the navigator out on a road. I was going to say, we have the big HF antenna flying out the back. <laughs> that starts dragging on the ground. We're probably in trouble. Oh, yeah. Brad sees a trend uh, occurring here. Uh, another, a crew, another crew under pressure. Oh, yeah. Lots yeah. of Definitely pressure. Definitely under well, you know, pressure. If, if, we, if, network, if the Network Australia flight would have just combined this air with their air, they would have just been able to make a perfectly acceptable uh, oh, approach yeah. on their first try. Oh, they there would have you go. The Good point. Go. Feet lower than they should have been. <laughs> We're not <laughs> recommending this, though. Please don't take us the wrong way. We're not recommending that you do that. <sighs> Interestingly, they, uh, the report has a bit of a go at the air traffic controller because um, he is in his uh, regulations, he is required required to listen to and check a readback to be absolutely certain that the numbers he gave the pilots were read back correctly. And of course he didn't yep. do that. So he was really under the hammer here. But on the other hand, when we do an instrument rating, they always take us ensure that we're at some point in the instrument rating, we go above transition altitude so that we set standard pressure setting on our altimeter and then come back down below it so, uh, to make sure that we remember to set Q and H uh, on our altimeters again. And Or you'll fail your instrument rating. That one action you've forgotten, you'll fail. Mm. Uh, I know I have failed one for doing exactly that. Mm. Um, Anyway, uh, so, you know, the, the pilots are not off the hook here. It's just that, of course, the air traffic regulations are written in stone, and they are exactly that. They're a sort of yep. legal regulation, whereas for the pilot, it's uh, in this circumstance, they give him a slightly easier time, which yep. is interesting. Yeah, and we keep I keep referring to some feedback that deals with um, readbacks from Greg Peterson. Uh, from Greg Okay, let, let's yeah. go ahead and eliminate that one again also. Um, no, just kidding. That's a good one. Uh, so just another example of proper communications and listening to what other people are saying when you tell them something, you're 
you should not just expect them to say exactly what you told them, but you should actually listen to make sure that they got it right. So, um, so, so we have a, uh, a discussion here with the control room. She's wondering, um, Nick C, have you had a chance to look at uh, the item with the uh, the Mooney in our uh, news? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to cover that, or um, do you want I, to um, save that for when I do it with um, uh, Steph? Uh, it's I, up to you. Uh, we can talk about it. If okay. You want. Why don't we do that then? Um, the uh, item is E, final report on a Minnesota Mooney crash. And uh, let's see, uh, NTSB issued the final report for the fatal accident involving a Mooney M20M, um, November 9156 Zulu. So that's a different one than the picture that we're showing here. Um, but it's the same type. And uh, it occurred on August 7th, 2021 in Victoria, Minnesota. Uh, they, Can I ask a question? Yeah. <clears throat> Did they stuck that tail on backwards? I know. Um, well, they, what have they done that for? I, well, I think it, it, was an, it was a mistake that somebody made. And then after they did <laughs> it, they thought, hey, it doesn't look so bad. It kinda, we like yes. that look. Let's, uh, it's going to set us apart okay. from all the other aircraft manufacturers. Yeah, uh, certainly does. No, I think that yeah. it was actually purposely uh, designed that way, and Nick C could probably tell us why. Yeah, I'm looking. Yeah, forward to that I mean, it's not actually it's not actually swept forward, right? It gives the illusion of being swept forward, but it's mm -hmm. uh, the, the leading edge is normal to the fuselage, and then just the trailing edge sweep makes it look oh, like it's totally swept forward. And it, I think it's, I think it was mostly just a. A marketing thing like it made it a very distinguished appearance well, okay to any other airplane right. absolutely i mean anytime you see that kind of tail you're going Matt, that's a movie i mean it's yeah kind of clever right. you know marketing you wise. know it's kind of funny you see sw sweet and swoopy uh surfaces then people associate those with fast and high performance but then you can get like a 182 with a uh, fairly raked back uh, vertical tail surface sitting next to a Mooney and that 182 is going to have uh, a fat wing and um, struts. It's got strutted wings and fixed landing gear, but it's got this fast looking tail, right? And then this Mooney has this uh, swept forward tail that everyone thinks is contrary to high performance, but it's a incredibly fast and efficient airplane. It really is. And this bloke Mooney, he was he ran a uh, some kind of cult church, didn't he? Well, I don't think that's the same Mooney. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. The, all right, yeah. The Korean. I something dude. new every week. Yeah. All right, let me read this. The pilot and two passengers, one of whom was a student pilot, departed on a personal flight. The pilot was cleared by ATC to fly an instrument landing system approach and ILS approach in instrument meteorological conditions (IMC). About 10 miles from the runway, while on final approach, the airplane slowed to 80 knots, tracked left of the approach course, accelerated to about 140 knots, and descended about 300 feet. The airplane subsequently turned right and descended below the designated altitude for the approach, which triggered a low-altitude alert that the controller transmitted and the pilot acknowledged. The airplane then abruptly turned left and entered a steep descent. The airplane continued in a left-turning spiral and descended below an overcast ceiling. 
The airplane subsequently impacted the ground upright about eight miles west of the destination airport. Both wings and the right stabilizer were deflected upward in a vertical position. No pre-accident mechanical failures or malfunctions were found with the airframe and engine that would have precluded normal operation. The airplane debris on the ground, the left horizontal stab, uh, left elevator, and part of the main wing spar upper cap splice plate showed that an in-flight breakup occurred during the final seconds of flight. Um, So the performance study for this accident revealed that the airplane exceeded its maximum positive load factor during the spiral descent. As the airplane descended below the overcast, a rapid ground speed increase and heading change occurred, which were consistent with the pilot or possibly the student pilot attempting to recover the airplane from a nose-low attitude after seeing the ground. The spiral descent and attempted recovery overstressed the airplane, which caused the in-flight breakup. Uh, While the pilot was flying the final approach, several of his radio transmissions to air traffic control were either delayed or disjointed indicating that the pilot was task-saturated. The performance study showed that when the airplane made the series of turns while on final approach, erratic altitude and airspeed fluctuations occurred. These airspeed and altitude fluctuations and the tight spiraling turn that began afterward were consistent with the pilot becoming spatially disoriented due to, to the lack of visual references while the airplane was operating in IMC. The pilot's spatial disorientation led to his loss of airplane control. A friend of the accident pilot stated that the pilot had adopted an instrument-flying habit in the Mooney airplane that involved making turns on approach primarily with a rudder and adjusting pitch attitude with the pitch trim. If the pilot controlled the airplane in such a manner during the accident flight, especially in response to the controller's low-altitude alert, the application of rudder could have exacerbated the pilot's erratic airplane control inputs while on approach. The pilot's electronic logbook did not show any logged instrument approach procedures in 2021, and the accident pilot did not fly with his usual safety pilot during 2021. The pilot's last flight review in October of 2020 did not include any instrument approach procedures. Neither the safety pilot nor the accident pilot's flight instructor knew whether the accident pilot had flown with another safety pilot to log instrument time. As a result, the investigation was unable to determine if the accident pilot met the FAA's regulatory requirements for instrument experience. Uh, Also, um, uh, a drug, diphenhydramine, commonly marketed as Benadryl, was detected in the pilot's liver and heart tissue. No blood specimen was available to uh, assess therapeutic levels. Uh, Diphenhydramine causes sedation and can slow psychomotor responses and reaction times, which can contribute to susceptibility, susceptibility, there we go, uh, to spatial disorientation. However, without a diphenhydramine blood level, the investigation was unable to determine whether the effects of the pilot's use of Benadryl, I'll say, contributed to this incident or accident. Uh, so I do have, um, it's kind of hard to look at it, some um, a video of, uh, uh, was from a security camera, um, and uh, let me add that to the stream, and uh, at a certain point I'll stop it, and then kind of go through uh, frame by frame, but I'll run it in, in normal time, or normal frame rate, or whatever, boom, okay, that's, it just fell out of the sky, and a big fireball and so let's just uh, back it up a little bit and you can see it coming into frame right well 
I thought there was one frame before that, but I'm having trouble controlling it to that degree. But you can see right there, the airplane is kind of in a nose up attitude as if, you know, they were attempting to, you know, pull up uh, before they hit the ground. But you can see that the wings are not in their normal position. If you remember the uh, photo that uh, Liz had shown earlier of the airplane um, in its normal condition, those wings, both left and right, are completely folded upward. And uh, let's see if I can move to the next frame if there's any other. And that's when it actually hits the ground. And, uh, and then it continues uh, to basically turn into a big fireball. Uh, so, Nick, um, what's, what's your um, analysis or input on this? Nick, see. Uh, well, I, you know, I think, um, obviously there's a, a couple of different, uh, points that they kind of made there The you know, the primary one being that, uh, it seems like he had a, uh, he had a, uh, kind of, um, preconceived or, or he, he flew the airplane in kind of a, an abnormal way, right? Like for the most part, when people are, learning to fly instruments and uh, are flying in IMC conditions, it's really kind of um, being having a stabilized approach and being very uh, stable and very uh, coordinated is important, right? Because, because of uh, these issues with your, um, your senses and how your senses uh, reference the, the motion of the airplane and uh, you know, I, I just think about like myself, my experience, which I'm, I'm not an instrument pilot. So I always have, I am always able to see the ground in the history of my uh, flying experience. I've always been able to see the ground, but you know, when you start uh, moving the airplane in an uncoordinated fashion, um, even, even on purpose, right? So uh, like uh, when I'm flying the Luscombe, oftentimes, will slip the airplane to uh, manage energy. And that's a very common uncoordinated, uncoordinated uh, maneuver, but it's still, um, it has a significant effect on um, your senses and, and how you are uh, perceiving the motion of your body versus the actual motion of the airplane. Right. So uh, it seems like he kind of got himself set up for a, a poor situation and then whether or not I think they said that they could not confirm whether or not he was uh, current, but you know, it's, I, I think it's just kind of one of those things where um, as you become less and less current and then less and less proficient uh, you start stacking those things on top of it. Right. He, if, if he was a, a pilot who flew regularly and was uh, used to being in the clouds, he may have had a little bit, um, tighter scan. He may have had a little bit better uh, understanding of his uh, physiological, um, you know, the things that were happening within his uh, sensory system. But then as you, you know, you look at the things that he started stacking up, he hadn't flown, possibly hadn't flown as often in IMC or uh, kept his currency up. He had this drug in his system that is uh, pretty well known to affect um, response time and, and, uh, how you, uh, how your kind of brain system works. 
and um and it seems like he just got himself in a bad situation then obviously the last one is um you know flying a the more high performance airplanes you get in the less margin there is when you have a control incident right because if you're in something like a 172 or a cherokee that has a pretty draggy airfoil and has fixed gear and won't accelerate when you lose control and get the nose pointed at the ground um you know you're the likelihood is you're gonna respond in a, about the same amount of time but you may have accelerated from say if you're flying at 100 knots and you get the nose pointed at the ground you may start pulling back on the on the controls at say 140 knots whereas in an airplane like this if you're flying if you're flying at 130 or 140 knots you lose control and you get the nose pointed at the ground you will very quickly get to 200 210 220 knots and then when you initiate that same recovery maneuver right which which is usually haul back on the controls that's when you get into issues with uh breaking wings pulling parts off of the airplane yeah yeah i think they said about 3.8 i think is the uh, maximum structural limit for uh pos- or the yeah, maximum that, positive that's load a, factor yeah that's the standard category load factor okay. for a or that's the load factor for a standard category airplane ah okay um a, a, a King Air uh, that flew the approach uh, shortly before the incident aircraft. Um, I think they said they they, were, they got into the clouds about forty five hundred feet. They broke out at about a thousand feet. So, as you said, if if they're already way higher airspeed than they should be when they actually pop out in this spiral left turn, um, you know, and, and probably rap airspeed rapidly increasing, and then you know. It's just not a, a good situation to be in when you yank back on the controls to keep from hitting the ground. Uh, yeah, the thing just breaks up. It's uh, pretty sad. There was a the the pilot uh, the doing the pedal turns. I think he's what he termed them. Uh, the student pilot and then a third passenger. So there were three on board the aircraft that perished, and um, nobody on the ground was um, injured or killed. So. Very sad. Yep, and and the you know the other thing is the Mooney is is very well known for its uh, structural robustness. I I guess uh, for lack of a better term, you know, in the I think the Bonanza is a very good airplane, but in the history of the Bonanza, there early on, you know, there were some fairly well known <laughs> structural issues. Uh, but the Mooney has always been known as a very strong airplane, so there was. Uh, a fair amount of, uh, I don't know, interest and intrigue maybe when uh, the pictures that specifically that picture that you paused it on with the airplane, with the wings basically folded up like a carrier airplane right mm-hmm. before it hit the ground. Yep. All right. Um, let's, uh, go to the, um, the, uh, getting to know us segment of the show. So I'd like to find out what, uh, Nick C. has been up to recently because uh, he hasn't been with us um, in recent shows. Um, anyway, getting to know us is that time of the show where we get all caught up. And so, Nick, tell us, what have you been up to? Yeah, so uh, been uh, fairly busy with work as usual. <laughs> uh, we had some uh, pretty dramatic changes at work that happened last week, so that kind of 
uh, stacked me up and uh, precluded me from joining the show. Uh, and um, right now, I think it's I've got a trip for work out to California planned uh, next week. So I'll be back out at the office for about a week next week, um, which may or may not affect my availability for when we record. Okay. I'm hoping that I can still uh, make it work. But uh, in addition to that, I've uh, been working a lot uh, on airplanes. You know, we've had both of our airplanes have uh, had gone out of annual. So we've been completing the annual process and um, it's been a lot of time Thursday and Friday uh, finishing up the Luscom. I think we got our we had a engine issue with the Luscom um, that I think we got sorted out. Uh, did some work on the exhaust valve of one of the cylinders. So I think we've got that kind of scored away. So uh, all we're lacking there is to put the cowling back on and put the prop back on, and that airplane should be ready to go. And then spent most of the weekend working on my airplane. Um, had it all taken apart. Um, my dad had looked at the engine, so the engine was all complete, but he went through and finished off his inspection of the airframe and the controls and everything. So I got that all put back together and then uh, did the landing gear inspection, which is a pretty uh, a pretty comprehensive uh, effort. It usually takes me about four or five hours. So uh, there's a lot of um, various uh, characteristics that have to be measured, uh, spring loads, cable tensions, uh, to ensure that uh, over the course of the year, uh, you know, things haven't gone out of rig due to wear or you don't have any issues with various aspects of that system. So uh, got that all wrapped up. And I'm hoping by the end of this week, we'll have uh, both of the airplanes back in service. So that'll be exciting. Awesome. So these annual uh, annuals that you talk about, how often do you have to do that? Um, <laughs> well, Bing. let me... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have to do them. You actually have to do them every thirteen months. Oh, it's uh, no, not because uh, no. you can because you can fly it for twelve months after, right? So you can fly it from when you do it until the end of the twelfth month, and then. Uh, but yeah, obviously it's a it's a periodic inspection once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't pick up on the annual thing in the year. I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just kidding. Okay. Yeah. There, In yeah, my mind, I mean, there, that was a lot funnier. Well, no, no, it's reasonable that, you know, there are some people who do it. So you, you sign off the annual and then uh, it's good to the end of the month that you signed it off on. So like, for instance, if uh, last, uh, I think last year I signed off my annual sometime around February 11th or something. So the annual is good for the end of the month. Yeah. Uh, uh, 12 months from there. So my annual is good until February 28th of this year. Mm-hmm. And so there are people who every year push it back a month. And so they basically get 13 months every year. I see, yeah. And yeah. over the course of the save airplane, money. Ownership, I guess that makes, <laughs> time, it right? does save some money. Yeah. Uh, you know, in my, uh, for me, I would rather have them lined up in the winter when there's not very good flying time. Mm-hmm. So I just, I would rather just eat the month to keep the annual in right. the January, February timeframe rather than, you know, run the risk of doing the annual in June and having something go wrong and the airplane's down for a month or two in the middle of the good flying weather. Yeah, that's no good. All right. Um, yeah, great to have you with us uh, again. Um, and uh, we have completely understand about your work situation. Um, tell me the truth is that uh, they decided to mount the tail of that 
special thing thing that <laughs> backwards or something. No, I'm, no. Okay. Um, so, uh, Captain Nick, what have you been up to, sir? Since our last, uh, I know we, we, it wasn't that long ago that we recorded. It was just a few days ago, right? Thursday. Well, that's very true. Uh, I um, jumped into a car and drove for five hundred miles. Oh, that's right. You did something. Um, I did. And uh, halfway through my journey, I stopped and chatted to some lovely people. I've got a bit of a video. Can I stick it up? Oh, stick it in there. That's what she said. If I can (laughs) stick. Uh, And uh, I'm not anywhere near home. I had to cross the line that I never normally cross, go north of the wash. And uh, I'm up in Yorkshire. Don't tell anybody, please. <laughs> uh, my reputation will be ruined. <laughs> okay, uh, I've been here at the lovely, um, what, what do you call it? We're at Leeds Bradford Airport. There's not much I can say about that, otherwise, uh, other than, say, go look at YouTube at some of the landings, because the worst pilots in the world fly to Leeds Bradford, <laughs> at Leeds Bradford Airport. You only have to look at their average landing in a bit of a crosswind to realise what crap they are. Anyway, uh, I was here chatting wow. to the uh, Air Yorkshire um, Aviation Society, fine bunch of uh, lovely Yorkshiremen who love airplanes. They're a great bunch. And I tell you what, they're one of the most interactive well, audiences. they love spotting them. Dealt with lots of lovely questions, uh, lots of actually quite smart questions, so very impressed with that. Um, the bloke who organises this is their chief. Uh, it's called Howard. And I'm going to introduce you, and he's going to tell you a little bit about himself. So, hello, Howard. You said all that with him there? Oh. Wow. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about your amazing aviation society. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm retired now, but I'm currently chairman of uh, Yorkshire Aviation Society. About 150 like-minded people, half of which are spotters, but half of which are just interested in aviation. Personally, I've been in, I've been in aviation since I was 18. Actually, since I was 13 when I joined the Air Cadets. But when I was 18, joined the Air Force, went down to Biggin Hill, Officer Air Crew Selection Centre, went through that for a whole week. Spent five years in the RAF, going to Bruggen, Gann, Gibraltar. Lovely. Had a wonderful time, especially at uh, Gann. Yeah, you start work at seven in the morning, finish at one, dipping the tanks. You can fry an egg on the top, on top by eight o'clock. But yeah, and then you just go swimming on the coral. It was wonderful, Maldives. Uh, after that, left that and joined British Aerospace on 146 sales. Got a bit bored, so I joined British Airways. 20 years, lovely. Thoroughly enjoyed it. End up as IT director of BA Cargo. Decide I'd had my 20 years, time to do something different. So I end up running a software company doing air cargo for another 18 years before I retired. So, been in aviation all my time. I owe my whole life to aviation. I am a spotter. I've been spotting since I was 13. Uh, last week was brilliant. Then went down to Waddington. Big exercise on. The, uh, there was up there, there was the Finnair with six F-18 Hornets. Every, every time they took off, they had to close the road because it made it shake so much. Uh, there was a, there was a uh, Belgians with F-16s and the Indians with Mirage then down to Coningsby where the Saudis were there with their typhoons Coningsby's wonderful at any time of year because it's always busy and noisy 
They do come into Lee's Bradford sometimes, usually at 10 o'clock at night. I don't think the local populace like it. <laughs> it's a bit noisy. <laughs> Quick uh, anyway. plug for your society. How do they get find you? Uh, they can find us at airyorkshire.org.uk website. Everything's there in terms of our speakers. We have one speaker a month. We organise visits. I had a recent one to Multiflight here. We're organising one to Liverpool, uh, Sherburne, Church Fenton. And, of course, we've got the Flying Legends display coming to Church Fenton this year, first ever. So if you're interested in aviation, just have a look at our website. It's one month, one pound a month to join, so it's not a lot. That's all for me. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Howard. And I really appreciate the invitation, Dan. That, someone else gate-crashed. Jeff. <laughs> look at that. Do you recognize that horrible man? <laughs> this is the amazing Grinner. We had him on the last show. He was in there in the chat room. Anyway, he's here in person. Grinner, what on earth are you doing up here? Well, good afternoon, uh, Captain Jeff and uh, all the rest of the APGs. What am I doing here? Well, I live here. Well, almost close to here anyway. This is my part of the world. So when I heard that uh, that Nick was uh, coming up to, uh, to Yorkshire to do... Uh, the talk to the uh, Air Yorkshire Aviation Society. Um, I couldn't pass on, pass by the opportunity to uh, pop over and reacquaint myself with uh, Nick face to face. As we haven't seen each other for a good number of years. A very probably, in fact, probably pretty close to thirty. I would think now. Absolutely, I'd forgotten that we had even flown together. <laughs> My blanked it out. Um, potted history of your amazing career, Grinner. Potted history. Well. Um, uh, very similar to Howard, I uh, started getting interested in aviation courtesy of my dad, who uh, was uh, d- did time in the Air Force in the, in the early 1950s, so just after the Second World War. Uh, I got the flying bug, uh, started hanging around uh, local airfields. As um, you do. As you do. Always wanted to just be a fighter pilot. I just wanted to fly fighters, uh, and that was where uh, I was driven to go. So uh, I didn't go to to, uh, university. I decided I'd uh, got my private pilot's license at the age of 17. Uh, I joined the Air Force at 18, so no college degree. Um, And did 21 years uh, in the Air Force flying uh, fighters, flying Lightnings, and then Tornado F3s, the airplane that Nick definitely doesn't (laughs) like. But I actually got very close to 3,000 hours on it. So I was, I was one of the high, higher um, houred people on that aeroplane. And then uh, 19 years ago, I left and I joined uh, one of the large large and expanding low-cost uh, companies uh, in, uh, in the UK, uh, initially flying the Boeing 737, and uh, I've been flying the Airbus 320 family for the last 14 years now. Um, and I just jumped ship a few months ago. Um, and I joined another uh, very successful uh, uh, airline uh, based actually in the north of England. Um, and uh, so similar job to what I was doing uh, previously at the previous airline, but with a far, far uh, lesser commute than I used to do. So that's my potted history. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, that's, uh, that's it really, unless you have a final uh, sort of handover? No, not at all. It's uh, nice to pass on a little bit of feedback. I've been thinking to myself for quite a while that uh, it was time I did some feedback. It's uh, been uh, been quite a considerable amount of time. So it's been great to actually see Nick face to face and to do this feedback uh, directly to the show. Brilliant. So that's me. So thanks very much uh, to all APGs. Still a fantastic, uh, uh, still a fantastic uh, podcast. Keeps me going on my. I still do have to commute. So. Back to you in the studio, Jeff. 
Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the throw. And obviously he had been drinking all those nice things he said about Captain Nick at the end, especially oh, yeah, now I understand was, yeah. why you were saying all those bad things about the people that live up there in Yorkshire. I didn't realize Completely you had was. him sitting across from you. That that, that makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a, a very pleasant time. Uh, and um, the talk went down very well. And Howard looked after us, uh, looked after me extremely well. Uh, he was a lovely guy and a great host. And it was uh, great to see Grinner again because uh, I, I, he reminded me that we had flown together. Uh, in the tornado, and I had to have a look in my logbook, uh, and there are the two flights I did with him. May the twenty second, uh, on nineteen ninety one, I think it was, and uh, we're in tornado F three, and uh, Mister Smith, uh, you know you've seen uh, the Matrix, haven't you? You know, there's a Mr. Smith and a mm -hmm. Mr. Anderson. Ooh. Uh, we made a good crew, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, Grinner was, uh, we didn't have a, a QI pilot who would normally do the dual checks to uh, let you go uh, live um, in Edoware gunnery on the flag. But uh, uh, Grinner had to come up and do that for us. We So we borrowed him from his squadron, uh, which was down south at the time. So uh, we flew together twice. The first time was a DNCO, duty not carried out, because when we got to the flag, um, it was flying at about uh, 45, 50 degrees because the weight had probably fallen off the bottom of the spreader bar. And uh, the flag has to be upright. Otherwise, your um, distance perception it becomes a problem. And you're likely to fly into it, or and it's very hard to hit when, <laughs> when it's not flying upright. So that's I think that's why we uh, we binned the first one anyway. They they dumped that flag in the probably in the North Sea, I expect, <laughs> and uh, we went off again in the afternoon and had another go. But uh, he passed me, so that was good. I was uh, cleared out of Gary. So that was that was fun for to be reminded of that. And he was he's a lovely guy. He really is. Thoroughly enjoyed our uh, uh, a few hours together. Yeah. So altogether, that was been my last few days. Very pleasant indeed. Uh, but it's been a bit of a rush, and now I'm looking forward to uh, a couple of weeks without too much to do. Excellent. Enjoy this retirement thing. You know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I need to get a bit of time off. <laughs> it's a good behavior. Um, just really quickly, uh, I might have more information. Um, oh, hang on before I, we do that. Um, um, I was just going to say that I just flew. I, I picked up a trip, and it was a three-day, two-leg trip. Uh, Sunday night, flew out to uh, up to Harrisburg, and then uh, this morning came came back one flight back. And uh, so I had all day yesterday off, which I used to uh, finish up the uh, editing of the last episode and publishing it. And uh, now here we are on episode 564. And I, I have to say that the first officer that I flew with um, is a or was a U.S. Well, I guess you're always a Marine, uh, U.S. Marine Corps F-18 driver. Uh, pilot, of course, and uh, oh, even despite terrible, despite that, he was actually a nice guy. <laughs> so, 
Just wanted to throw that out there. You didn't have to ask him what he did before, did you? He just came out and told you. Actually, he was he was not uh, as as uh, egocentric as uh, as most of the fighter pilots that I know, like Captain. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, he. Uh, he, you know, I, I, he didn't volunteer that information immediately. I mean, it was probably at least five, ten minutes um, into our, say, yeah. our, exactly our relationship. Right. Before the he, first beer is finished, <laughs> that's usually when you get it in. <laughs> anyway, uh, really a great time um, spent with him. We had a really nice dinner at the hotel. Uh, it was a steakhouse uh, situation, a, a pretty good one there in Harrisburg that uh, is right at the hotel, and uh, we uh, really enjoyed that. All right. Um, so now let's talk about the cover art from the uh, last episode, Flying High, uh, referring to the, uh, what was it called? The, uh, the dual, the tandem air, tandem bike air something or other, but, uh, yeah, yeah. we, that was that um, very unfortunate incident with a couple of guys who they discovered had him by, they were neither, neither of them were qualified to do what they were doing. No. And they had been imbibing in uh, in substances, which it's best not to have in your system. Yeah, it's kind of frowned upon. When you, when you go fly. But, you know, it's interesting that you found this photo of them right before they crashed. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. I must get a pair of those goggles. They look great fun. They do yeah. look, yeah. Yeah, and I'm still trying to work out how <laughs> that tandem actually works. How does no, it fly? I don't know. It's interesting that the guy's right shoe is uh, quite different than his left shoe. Obviously, the drugs uh, affected his <laughs> his decision making choice. choice of shoes. Yeah, he's put the <laughs> he's put odd shoes on. <laughs> this mid journey thing is interesting. How it kind of comes up with these uh, images. Yeah, I, I correct some of them. Others, and have you counted their fingers? Yeah, that the fingers are. I, it, the, no thumbs, it, it, uh, just think five yeah, fingers. No thumbs and <laughs> five fingers. Yes. Yeah. They, interesting. They, strange blokes. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying playing with it. And I uh, that's that's what he said. Mid journey. Um, the um, oh mid journey. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Misunderstood. Um, the we I did see the uh, show uh, information, uh, the show number on the uh, top collar of the t-shirt of the. Uh, uh, guy in the back, uh, uh, the, the instructor. Yes, <laughs> the Gib, the instructor pilot. Okay, the instructor yeah. that was not qualified to be I'd an instructor. Try not to make it too hard, yeah. otherwise people stop looking. And that's that's not what you want to hear her say. <laughs> okay, uh, let's um, continue on. Anything else that we do? We'll we'll do a coffee fund on the with uh, Stephanie. Maybe we'll have somebody. That, yeah, so we won't have to do this sad puppy thing <laughs> maybe hey somebody out there like send us a donation and then we'll have something to talk about for the coffee fund okay um and uh let's quickly uh, since i'm hoping greg is still with us greg peterson our big ass fan and uh he sent us some feedback number 16 and he said hey crew i've waited 30 years to make this announcement and have known about this chain for over a month but i wanted to wait until it was official as of Monday, April 3rd, which was yesterday, um, I'm officially an employee in the aerospace industry. Yay. Let's see. Wow. Go. Yay. That's a good job. And let's see. He, well well uh, done, Greg. Uh, I started a job as an engineer at a major aircraft engine manufacturer in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
I'll be working on combustors and structural components on all of their major commercial, regional, business, and marine engines. This is the job that I've wanted since I graduated from college in the last century. Yeah, he's quite old. Uh, I look forward to my career in the aerospace industry, and hopefully this will take me to my retirement. Blue skies and tailwinds, Greg Peterson. Wow, that's just Absolutely. Awesome. Good, Good luck news. with Great that. News. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that job. And Sounds I did. Um, I followed up with uh, Greg and congratulated him in private. And I asked if um, I'm, I'm hoping this is this is information that I can share. That he, I, because Lex, he lives in Lexington, his family, and uh, Cincinnati is about a uh, I don't know between an hour and hour and a half drive. I think to the north, eighty eighty ish miles. And I was wondering if he was going to be commuting uh, every day to his job, or if they were going to eventually move up closer to the Cincinnati area. And I think that the latter is the case. He's going to, um, he said, because it'd be like a four hours a day, you know, going there and coming back uh, of a commute. That's oh, a, they have time to listen to the show. Well, that's true. I was just gonna say. <laughs> yeah, you should consider that. Reconsider it. <laughs> anyway, so that is awesome news, and uh, really, really happy for you. And I know, I know how how long it's been uh, that you've been wanting to uh, get a job in the aerospace industry, and that you did it, man. That's 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 great. Yeah, brilliant job. Um, you know what? We could probably do maybe um, the feedback from Armando. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Does it got some video in it? Because I need to go to the list. Yes, there is a video. So get oh, out of great. here. That's perfect. And I'll uh, I'll upload his uh, his his um, video and then play it. So let me remove this one first, and uh, I'll hit present video file. And this was just sent to us just a couple of hours ago. This is talking yeah. about a fresh Not video, and uh, and and you'll see what I mean. You know, fresh video. I mean, this guy. Man, fresh face. What a good-looking man this guy is. And uh, for those of you who don't know Armando, he is one of the hosts of the Plain Talking UK podcast. And uh, so we're going to hear from from Armando right now. Hey, guys. Um, listening back to 563 and the first story about the challenger that had the upset a couple notes. So this is a little insight into the corporate aviation side of the house. I uh, had three kind of thoughts on it. One, uh, with the the first part, the pitot tube cover being left on. Another thing that happens is the heats come on. The pitot heats come on pretty much right after you start engines, and it could be a problem. Like you guys, one of the things somebody in the chat room said that it's possible that the ADC kept some of those values and the from the airspeed mismatch, but this actually happens in Pilatuses where people will accidentally leave the covers on and depending on the type of cover, may actually melt a portion to it, um, whether it's the uh, AOA vein or the pitot tube itself, it may actually melt some plastic from the cover onto the sensor, the, the pitot tube, and that could have been something just in the back of my mind, I was thinking, ooh, I wonder if they melted something on onto it. Um, second thought I had on that story was uh, Captain Jeff was going right along, on the right track where there, I would anticipate that there was some embarrassment from the rejected takeoff, especially opening the door, removing the cover, 
um, you know, shutting an engine down and then having a high profile passenger like that. Uh, Jeff, I, I think you hit it, hit the nail on the head where they were probably rushed and should have gone back and reaccomplished the, um, in the Air Force, we, if we have a rejected takeoff, we would have accomplished the after landing checklist, gone back to the uh, either the taxi checklist before takeoff checklist, at which point they would have verified that they had their speeds. <clears throat> but it is very much a reset thing. I can almost guarantee you that they Police were ahead. that they were rushed and and probably just wanted to speed down the taxiway and get get another takeoff. <clears throat> before the um, the passengers really got upset. Um, the third kind of note from that story was something that you guys were both asking about was how do we handle heat seat belts in the corporate side of the house? Well, we still have the same federal regulations, so we do flip on the fasten seat belt sign. The Challenger doesn't have an, an attendant, usually a flight attendant. Um, especially on a Part 91 flight where it's an owner flight, so they own that airplane. Uh, the company just executive just managed it and provided the crew. Uh, there's probably not a flight attendant on board. Uh, the flight attendant would have, well, let's just say, probably not a flight attendant on board. On the co-pilot side, there is an automated uh, panel where all of the cabin announcements, whether it's turbulence, um, if you flip the seatbelt sign on, it's an automated voice that says the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. So that's how we comply with regulations is by actually playing out an audio recording of the required announcements. However, there's nobody back there to monitor whether or not the passengers are complying. So it's interesting and this is just kind of a open kimono moment. Most of the owners don't wear their seatbelts. <clears throat> I don't know if it's a pride and ownership thing. I, I, I don't know what it is. We know as corporate pilots that most likely they're not wearing seatbelts in the back. Uh, even if it's just one person, the primary or the principal, or if it's a full house, um, they, they're probably not wearing seatbelt signs. So we will, while we comply with the regulations and we turn the fasten seatbelts on after uh, takeoff, if we know there's gonna be something like turbulent air ahead of us, we will flip them off and back on to force them, to, well, I guess to force another announcement of the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. It's automated again. And hopefully, them hearing that a second time or at a time where they wouldn't usually hear it would um, you know prompt them to actually buckle in however again there's no one monitoring it in the back and it is unlikely that they will actually follow those instructions it's just a it's a nature of corporate aviation where we comply with the regulations the best we can. Some operators don't. They don't provide a safety brief. Um, if they're the owners, they don't actually need a safety brief. It's their airplane. Um, a lot of times when I'm flying owners, I will just let them know, 
hey, it's uh, gonna be an hour and a half. It's bumpy the first 10 minutes as we leave Charlotte. It's gonna be nice smooth flying. We'll be at 40,000 feet. There's no additional safety briefing because it's their airplane, they're used to it. And uh, it's not a part 135 as a part 135 <clears throat> uh, charter, on-demand charter operation, you would be required to give a safety brief. But actually not in a part 91. So there you go, just a little insight into the weirdness and wonkiness of corporate aviation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Armando, for taking the time. You're, it's amazing. Uh, great information um, regarding the, um, regarding that incident uh, with the uh, uh, pitch trim situation and the fatality of the uh, White House um, uh, former State Department advisor. Um, yeah, good stuff. Um, and, and that's, stuff that I, you know, obviously don't know anything about, you know, part 91, especially in, you know, the corporate world. So good, good stuff. Thank you for sending that in. Again, that was Armando carry on, uh, part of the, uh, crew at the plane talking UK podcast. Please make sure you check them out. They record every Friday. Sometimes we record kind of at the same time, mess things up for them. We, sorry, guys. <laughs> we do it on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's an interesting uh, glimpse into the psychology of the sort of people that can afford to own their own uh, business jet, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, perhaps they feel the rules that apply to your average traveler don't apply to them, which, you know, I, I wonder at. Right. And you missed it at the beginning. Um, the... Um, he was talking about the uh, the the pedo uh, cover, and then we are oh, yeah. our, we yep, were thinking yep. that it might have had something to do with the messing up the system, the air data computer system. And he goes, "It's very likely that's what happened there." And the oh, fact right. that okay. that they were probably a little embarrassed, you know, by the you know having to uh, stop the airplane, shut down an engine, go out there, pull the cover off, and you know get back on, and that was kind of led to that rushing things and not going over checklists and making sure that everything was the way it should be. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. When you, when you're working for the guy that owns the airplane, I mean, if I had a problem and either had Richard Branson on board, you know, it just adds another layer of pressure that, that you don't really want and you can't really, it, it doesn't feel comfortable then to try and, you know, slow mm -hmm. things down because you're actually, uh, doubly under pressure to speed things up right it's dreadful dreadful situation to be in it is it is all right well um that's going to end it for uh the first part of airline pilot guy episode 564 and uh if you're if you're around on friday uh and you want to catch us live we're planning on doing that in the morning um just a couple of days from now so that's it have yeah. a good part too jeff well thanks uh, i'll make sure that i say hi to stephanie uh for y'all please do and uh yeah until then have a great couple of days So, the last you heard from us uh, was part one, and now we're on part two, 
and we're on another day. Two days later, and Steph has joined us. Yay! Hey, Steph. Yay! Magic of podcasting. Oh, it's seamless so transitions mixed. from part one to part two. I mean, I, seamless just doesn't even approach the description of what has been happening here. <laughs> well, I mean, anyone just listening to this will have no idea. Yeah. And that's why they should watch the YouTube live. Yeah. If you watch the the live the video, you'll you'll see that uh, things have not been going well this morning. But uh, that's okay. We, uh, yeah, not optimum, uh, optimal. All right. So we are going to uh, cover uh, a few items with Dr. Steph, and then we're going to end the show. So uh, which one are we going to start with? Uh, 1B, 1B. 1B. Okay, here we go. This is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, it's a final report. Uh, a JAC Japan Air Commuter ATR 72 on behalf of JAL Japan Airlines registration J Juliet Alpha 06 Juliet Charlie performing flight 3760 from Nakatane to Kagosh Kagoshima. Kagosh Kagoshima. 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 Uh, landed on Kagoshima's runway 34, causing a serious injury to a passenger. Oh, yeah, we, we talked about this before uh, when after it happened. And we're going like, what? What happened? So on the 30th mm -hmm. of March, 2023, the JTSB released their final report in Japanese. Now I'm going to read it in Japanese. No. Wait, hang on. Let me scroll down. Oh, we, we, we have a translation in English. One passenger oh, who is my, my Japanese is a little rusty. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was only getting like every not a single word of that. <laughs> One passenger uh, who was seated at the time of touchdown suffered a compression fracture of the lumbar vertebrae due to the impact of landing. Wow. It must have been really, really hard landing, right? The weather at the time, the piloting op uh, operations and the aircraft did not contribute to the injuries. There is no reason for the injury. <laughs> Well, there's got to huh. be a reason. No reason. Nothing to see here. This is not the injury you're looking for. Well, according to the JTSB, anyway. Obviously, not many doctors are on staff there. Uh, they At the airline? Yeah. Or, or the, the, the board. Oh, the JTSB. Yeah. That was the JTSB. Sorry. Uh, they they anazed, I think that means analyzed, that the passenger <laughs> had a history of compression fractures of the second lumbar vertebrae and usually wears a waist belt. However, a pass to pass smoothly through security checks, the passenger had taken off the waist belt, but did not put it back on. The passenger was conscious of his seating position, but was asleep at the time of touchdown. The actual vertical acceleration at touchdown was 1.53 Gs. Uh, that's really not much. There were no uh, anomalies with the aircraft and seats, and the landing was normal. So there you go. He, the idiot forgot to put his compression belt back on. So this is someone who already had a pre-existing compression fracture issue problem. Yes. Probably, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why you can get lumbar compression fractures, you know, having poor bone density, having some sort of pathologic problem like a, a cancer history or something that could weaken the bone structure. There's there's a whole bunch. Um, but yeah, the 1.53 G shouldn't be sufficient for anyone in a normal state of health, I would think, to cause compression fractures so and perhaps if he were awake at landing he could have maybe sort of braced you know like adjusted his posture and maybe yeah, even maybe i don't know if be sitting you know be sitting in a sitting well i can talk this morning be no, sitting in a in an optimal <laughs> position or posture 
Maybe Windows. not. Maybe maybe he was fragile enough that you know anything above one G is going to be sufficient to some some people are uh, you know compression fractures can happen to some people just with normal daily activities and movement and sometimes they happen while people are sleeping or turn over the wrong way in bed if their uh, bone structure is sufficiently um, hmm. um, impaired compromised enough. Well, that's no good. I think we had Bo in the chat room earlier. He can probably speak to that a lot more eloquently than I can, actually. Is he a bone doctor guy? I I think he does, if I remember correctly. Cool. Uh Um, So, So, yeah, so really, we we were correct in our interpretation previously that we didn't understand really what had happened. The JTSB didn't get it either, and... um, Turns out he just had a medical uh, underlying medical condition that predisposed him to these types of problems at baseline. The flight really was kind of a inconsequential. Okay. Well, Liz, I'm going to ask you to ask uh, Steph. Go ahead. No, just right where you are. I've, I've handled all the audio routing. Steph, if he'd had the belt on, would that have helped? Mm, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Nice definitive answer there. Yeah. So they can happen sometimes to people with who are just sitting doing nothing. Got so. it. Yeah. All right. Very good. Wasn't that fancy the way I did that? Yeah, it was very fancy. That was, fancy. <laughs> that was like that was like voice from the ether. So that's Let's that's do- what I'm hearing, you know, from the control room when I'm uh, sure. doing all Let's this. Let's do one G. One G. All the news. 1G. Okay. One G. We're skipping two in the news. Uh, a Boeing employee. One G. Okay. Uh, Let's see. An Auburn resident, uh, Auburn, uh, Washington state and a Boeing employee has been identified as the winner of the record-breaking Powerball jackpot that was drawn on February 6. The Ooh, woman showing her tickets. Oh, oh no. was that the one that I'm so disappointed way back then and you didn't get oh. none, I don't know I can yeah. neither confirm nor deny yeah actually they are from back then and none of them are winners so <laughs> I need to just shred these okay wait I have we have to look at eye hall boxes uh, I don't know at a certain age even the vertical acceleration when passing gas makes it sound like something rips well that sounds like a personal problem to me <laughs> sounds like something that you should consult with your personal doctor about <laughs> I don't know why. I wake up. I woke up last night very startled. Some huge noise. I don't know what it was, but I did feel <laughs> relief in Relieved? some way. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, back to the Auburn resident <laughs> and winner of the record-breaking Powerball jackpot. She was. She had worked as a supply chain analyst for Boeing for nearly thirty-six years. It was because of this that she decided to even buy a lottery ticket. Uh, she was in the Auburn Fred Meyer with her daughter on February 5 to get groceries when she saw a sign on the lottery vending machine showing that the estimated jackpot was at $747 million. She also realized that Boeing had just that week delivered its last 747 jumbo Rick jet. Would love this story. That's when it hit me. I had to buy one more ticket, she said. The woman ended up claiming a $754.6 million jackpot. This was the ninth largest Powerball one in U.S. history. She claimed her big check and had a celebratory cake uh, with a nod to the 747 reference. Um, Let's see. The Fred Meyer store that sold the $754 million winning jackpot ticket announced that it would be giving a $50,000 bonus to the Auburn Food Bank. That's nice. The donation will provide about 66,000 meals to the community. Kroger, who owns Fred Meyer 
also gave $10,000 to the store to throw their own celebration with their employees. That's also nice. Yeah, I don't know if that happens. This happens in other countries, but the the store, uh, the outlet that sells the winning um, large lottery drawing tickets usually gets a, a bonus uh, as well from the lottery. Cool. So, yeah. So All Miami right. Rick would have endorsed this story. Yes, Miami Rick would have definitely endorsed this story. Okay. Well, I'm surprised he didn't win. I mean, it just seems right up his. You know, he should have no, ticket and. But, but the, I mean, he's won so much in life already. Does he really need That's another seven hundred? Yeah. No, he's he's wealthy in so many ways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but just being a, a co-host on this awesome podcast is like winning the like jackpot. It. What more could you possibly ask for <laughs> in life? <sighs> no other accomplishment. Mm. Everything <laughs> okay, let's do this. We're going to catch up with Miss Steph, a getting to know Steph segment. Mm-hmm. About Steph Getting to like Steph Getting to hope you like Steph too <laughs> And that's that's the original lyrics I so hope you guys up. like me We do No, we know what we don't oh. I know you do I'm just I'm no, saying they, this to the, no, the they listening do. They, they not only like general. you, they love you Just as we do I love you guys Steph, yeah. what have you been up to, love? Hmm. I wish I could say it was something interesting, but um, since the last time we've talked, not make something up. Something up. Um, I don't know. I went uh, and took a. I got my scuba diving certification and swam (laughs) with sharks and other large underwater Uh, sea creatures. Well, see, you know what? That's what's so funny about that is that we'd all believe it. (laughs) Okay, really? Oh, yeah. If I said that, you would be like, "Yeah, that definitely happened." Sounds like stuff. yeah, but I, I, you know, I did that, and then I immediately became the world's greatest scuba dive uh, practitioner. I'm not even sure what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bo! Bo's I was here. able to visit. Yeah, he's here. I'm sorry, Quick I didn't check. mean to interrupt yeah, you. So that was very rude of no, me. No, <laughs> I knew he was here earlier. It's okay. You interrupted my fake story about scuba diving, which I do not actually have a certification to do. Although I get asked that question often because I do have a uh, background in swimming and you know, doing travel and adventurous things, but nope, never done any scuba diving. Couldn't tell you why. I've never really had a huge interest in doing it. I like snorkeling. Um, I could do part that. of me doesn't like, doesn't like wearing the big mask that goes over your nose though. Like it makes, I don't like the way you have to breathe just through your mouth or a mouthpiece or even just a snorkel. And I kind of don't like really deep or murky water. I like pools. Like swimming in pools, like sea stuff. Yeah. So, so, so going to the Bo Abrahamson yeah. guy, did he ever answer the? Didn't you have a question for him regarding the? I was trying to remember what type of. I think he's a doctor as well. Yeah. Yeah. What? what uh, and I thought he are, did stuff related you, uh, to bone bone health, endocrinology, or rheumatology, or something along those lines. If I remember correctly. It's been a while since I've... Okay, we'll just... Anyway. We'll wait for like five minutes for him to respond. We'll wait for... But okay. while we're waiting, we can talk yes. about... Um, yeah, I, um, you know, family stuff going on. So I was dog-sitting quite a bit this this week. So I had a full house with lots and lots of dogs um, to take care of. And they're awesome and, yeah, sad puppy dogs. They were sad because I had to work all week, too. So I did not pay them nearly as much attention as they're used to, to getting... Um, 
suppose, an endocrinologist. I don't know. It's a, it's holiday today, so I'm not at work today, and it's Friday, and I Yay. keep forgetting that. It feels like Saturday, but it's not. It's Friday. Well, Bo's so an nice endocrinologist, which is the yeah, same thing as a bone doctor, I think. I said, no, yeah, no. I said endocrinologist <laughs> first, right? Didn't I? <laughs> you probably did. I did. I just wasn't listening. <laughs> Leave um, me alone, Liz. Now we were talking about um, okay, compression well. fractures and bone health earlier, Bo. If you stepped away for a minute, I'm not sure if you did or not. Anyway. Um, Neither here nor there. Um, supposed to be flying this weekend, but our weather here is not great. Um, lots of rain, some thunderstorms, that kind of stuff. So I don't know that I'll be doing any flying this weekend. Um, I'm sure it will be lovely weather, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, as usual. And then just terrible weather on the weekends. Seems mm -hmm. like how it always goes. Um what else? I don't know. That's about it. I really don't have a ton of stuff to um well, we're glad she's to share. here. I can make up some more fake things that I may or may not have done. Well, how about Boy. some real things? There's your uh, <laughs> There's our weather weather yeah. system there. So I'm just to the south of that blob in Charlotte that's got the lightning happening right now. So Yeah, let's see if I can uh if I can zoom into that a little bit. Yeah, uh, that's okay. That's a good no. zoom level. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, very colorful. There's some there. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Bo gonna make its way this way. So, all right, Bo. I has was away. A... Sorry, but thanks for caring about vertebral fractures. Yes. There you go. We do care. Yes. Yes, we do care. Mm -hmm. Very caring. And if you are someone who has a history of them, is susceptible to them, um, maybe try to avoid things that involve impact forces, and consult with your doctor on ways to prevent additional fractures exactly mm -hmm. all right do you want to talk coffee fun right. and then show the yeah sad puppy? let's uh do that let's uh do the coffee fund quickly johnny how much more coffee sure thing i love coffee i love tea I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I always enjoy hearing Liz sing along with me. <laughs> it's perfect sync. Not... You, could, you could just sneak her audio into the... Which, oh, I could you know, have. If you did. <gasps> I could have done that. Could have. Opportunity. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You ready, Liz? Just do what you normally do. Okay. She's very excited about this. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to kill me later. Hey, it's a coffee Sorry, fun time. How much more coffee? Sure thing. Yes, please. I love I coffee. Love coffee. I, love I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's what it sounds like to me every time we record this show live. Perfect. Anyway, coffee fun. Yes, you will. It was awesome. Everybody wants you to sing. So. The Coffee Fund is your way to support the show financially. And the reason why we're just, you know, having fun here is because we have no contributions <laughs> since Sad puppies. the last Sad puppies. episode. But that's okay. We have a lot of people out there 
uh, every week and every month uh, sending us contributions. So we uh, recurring contributions. We do uh, really appreciate it. So you can use the Coffee Fun Classic method, or uh, that's a basically PayPal, or you can become a patron of the show via Patreon. And information about all that stuff is on our website, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And uh, you can learn all about how you can become part of the group of cool kids that support us financially. And uh, I mean, heck, what else can you say? Really? Don't you want to be a cool kid? Yeah. Be a cool kid. I think you do. You know, Mm -hmm. we'd be happy if you did. And you will be too. All right. Oh, yeah. Captain, incoming message. Our second feedback segment. And we're going to go to which one, Liz? Kakalaki. Oh, good. That means I need to set up a video, don't I? All right. This is very Mr. Smooth. Just, Just call me Mr. Smooth. (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Smooth. Hello. Aging Mr. Smooth. Yeah, okay. Uh, move out of the way, please. There we go. All right. And, yeah. okay. So, let's see. Do I need to set this up? A little bit. Just yeah, I do. So, this was sent to us from Scott. He said, I was curious uh, where this wacky location associated with Dr. Steph is. And he's referring to Kakalaki. And I came upon this song. It's quite fun. And the site is from the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, who we hope will not sue us for playing this video. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's promotion, I think. It's promotional. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're just promoting. We are. So the Carolinas. This is uh, I, I love this, actually. This is this is my kind of music right here. Kakalaki, so. take one. Kakalaki, take one. into my mouth you know it sure does sound like carolina north and south don't care where it comes from or how it came to be kakalaki always means home sweet home to me kakalaki nothing's finer if you ask me kakalaki got it all nothing lacking We all talk like that around here. Yeah. Yeah. I love this. Just makes you smile. This is the only type of music you can listen to in North or South Carolina. (laughs) Right. Regulatory. You've all heard that song that's called the Cluck Old Hen And how that hen ain't cackled since the good Lord knows when Chicken's got a beak and rooster's got a comb You know the greatest cackle is my cackle home Cackle-lacky, nothing's finer if you ask me Cackle-lacky, got it all and nothing lacking Cackle-lacky, don't stay away by cracky Come see what's going on in Kakalaki. Yeehaw! 
state song of both North and South Carolina. Yes. In fact, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, you're only allowed to listen to this kind of music. Every time uh, I visit yes. Steph and she picks me up in her Jeep uh, that has like cackalacky painted all over it, uh, she turns on the radio and this is the kind of music. It's just all like bluegrassy. Yeah. yeah. Which would be okay folksy. with me. It's uh, I like, uh, you know, uh, 20 years ago I would have gone, Ugh, I hate this stuff, but I love it now because I'm an old fart. I guess. And then we have beer festivals around it, like the Brewgrass. Yeah, the Brewgrass. Blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was fun. And, except for the part where I fell down. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with <laughs> We've with all it. forgotten about that. Was it Nick with Obviously. You was it Nick no. no, it was Rick. Rick was the, Rick. with us. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rick helped pick me up off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so that was a lot of fun, except for the falling down part. Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, there we go. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for uh, sending that to us. And uh, and now everyone knows a little bit more about the Carolinas. By cracky. They do. By cracky. <laughs> okay. We're going to go to number nine now. Number Jeff. nine. Uh, there's two pieces of audio. The second one is specifically for Steph, but you might want to do both. I don't know. Okay. We've got lots of time. We could do both. All right. Uh, number nine. This is uh, f- feedback from Anders. Um, let's see, two sets of audio feedback for, from a first time feedbacker. And then the uh, second one is for Steph. So, um, let's see, he says, uh, hi, ABG crew sending you two sets of audio feedback. Uh, I should have just read this one about the accident in Sweden back in 2021 that killed one pilot and eight skydivers and one with a one, uh, a more trivial question. And then he gave us a link to the final report regarding the accident. Oh, yeah, and, sorry. Number one is for Steph, so the long one is for Steph. Okay. The long one, uh, the number one that's one is, yeah, that's what he said, uh, is um, the accident in Sweden. So let's go ahead and play that. Here we go. Hey, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. Long-time listener, first-time feedbacker here. Uh, my name is Anders, and I work with web design and content management for a huge company here in Sweden. And like everyone else on this podcast, I'm a huge av geek, consume everything aviation pretty much. Um, I'm trying my best to save up to a ULB certificate. I'm hopeful that I will start my flight training somewhere next year if the economy permits, but we'll see about that. In the meantime, I'm using the Flight Simulator X-Plane to hone my flying skills. Uh, I'm mostly using the uh, Cessna 152. But I'm also following Captain Jeff's habit of flying old retired aircraft like the DC-8, the 727, and the 737-200. I've been I've been listening to the show since 2016. Yeah, that was my last year at university, so 2016. And I gotta say, you helped me a lot through through those past uh, those last uh, tough months. Uh, it was uh, so nice just 
putting on an episode and just uh, forgetting about the studies for a while and just getting back to it. So huge thanks, I gotta say. Um, my first bit of feedback is uh, regarding the Swedish Accident Inves- Investigation Authority's final report regarding the uh, tragic accident that happened in Sweden two years ago with um, a DHC2 that left... Uh, Let's see, it left nine dead, one pilot and eight skydivers. And uh, I'm going to read directly from the report regarding the conclusion. Um, it says like this. Uh, the conclusion is that the control of the aircraft was likely lost in, condition, condition, in connection with the wing flaps being retracted in a situation where the stick forces were high due to an ab- abnormal elevator trim position. While the aircraft was unstable, uh, due to being t- tail heavy and abnormal trimmed. The low altitude was not sufficient to regain control of the aircraft. The cause of the accident was that several safety slips occurred in the operation, which result, uh, resulted in that the safety margin was too sm- small for a safe flight. And among the findings uh, uh, they, they did was, um, I'm not going to read everyone, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple of them. Uh, that that I found inter- interesting. Uh, once there were no system for cal- calculating the mass and balance before the flight. Um, the mass and center of gravity were outside the uh, allowed limits for the aircraft. The elevator trim was in an abnormal position for takeoff. And uh, looking at the pilot's history, there were remarks in the pilot's previous proficiency sex uh, that um, he should be encouraged to use uh, the checklist instead of uh, using memory actions. Don't know exactly what that term is, but uh, I'm guessing that you that you're trying to remember the checklist at the top of your head instead of reading it. And the last one is that during the per- period after the skydiving accident accident in the in Umeå 2019 until the, this uh, accident, no operational oversight of pilots operating in aircraft in non-commercial skydiving activ- activities was uh, carried out. Um, so there, were, there was a couple of points there um, that uh, led to this accident. But, but the, the things I'm taking from, from this accident is, uh, first of all, checklists. And from what I can, from what I can interpret from the, uh, the safety report, the... He that the pilot didn't use the the checklist correctly, and um, that really was was one thing that raised my eyebrows. And as I said, well, I'm no pilot, at least not yet. But one thing I've learned enough is that uh, checklists are checklists are a vital tool, not missing anything critical or non-critical. Uh, but but I'm guessing I'm not I'm uh, and I'm really I'm not trying to uh, put the pilot under the bus here. It just uh, it just perhaps. Um, normal human behavior that um, once you get experienced on an aircraft some items uh, uh, that you check become second nature and you get uh, confidence pe- confident perhaps overconfident that you know your aircraft and how it works and um, isn't that pretty much when you are in danger that you think you know or you assume that you, you know uh, so the lesson <laughs> the lesson I'm for this is never forget your checklists and uh, the the other part or ta- the, the lesson I'm taking for this is that uh, the the mass and balance uh, question, and I knew that mass and balance is uh, not a vital part of safe flights, but 
not as much as uh, as as I thought in regards to general aviation. I knew it. I, I knew it was. Uh, I knew it. It is important for uh, bigger aircraft like airliners and cargo aircraft and such. But uh, uh, being being such a huge con- contribu- contributor factor to this accident was another thing that raised my eyebrows. Um, so that's the pretty much the, the takes or the, the lessons I'm taking from this. But I would like to hear your comments uh, regarding this final report. Um, and especially you, Steph, since I'm guessing this, uh, this, hits, this hits, hits pretty close, uh, close to home. Um, anyways, tailwinds, blue skies, and uh, Liz, I don't know if you're a hockey fan or not, but uh, if you are, best of wishes to the Maple Leafs in the Stanikov playoff. Thanks. Bye. Not a hockey yeah, fan. Yeah, Liz says not a hockey fan, but she does <laughs> appreciate the nice curling. thoughts. Yeah, how how are the curling championships going on uh, there? Liz? Uh, we're doing okay so yeah, far. Doing okay, she said. Yeah, so far. Uh, so from Bo, uh, not doing CG calculations and going through checklists certainly sounds out of character for the Nordics, even in. Georgia. Oh, no, GA. In my, uh, I, I see GA and I think Georgia. Uh, <laughs> GA in my limited experience. Hmm. Yeah. Well, right. uh, so ahead, just Scott. to kind of recap a little bit here, because he, he went through it and I, I think maybe we talked about this and I'm not sure we had maybe some preliminary information back when this happened in 2021. Um, so this was a uh, DHC2 Turbo Beaver, which I think has PT6 from what I saw in the, the picture there. Um, I don't have any uh, familiarity with flying the beaver or the size of it or any of that stuff, but we'll talk about a lot of the general things that um, Anders brought up in his feedback, which were all very, very good points. Um, <clears throat> so I do have um, kind of a condensed version of the causes and contributing factors here. And it sounds to me basically like what happened was the, on this particular flight, for whatever reason, they took off with an incorrect um, trim setting. So probably elevator trim setting. Um, And perhaps with the, uh, with too much weight in the aft portion of the aircraft for, for weight and balance calculations. Um, And then there was an issue where, because of that, they they still took off, but as the yeah, as the um, wing flaps were retracted, uh, the aircraft became unstable. Basically, uh, there was like a forty five degree forty five degree turn, abrupt pitch down, and and subsequent crash. So, um, yeah. So first thing Anders brought up is use of checklists for kind of going through what you're going to do, especially. Um, right before you take off. So for our operation, um, yes, we have checklists. Yes, we use checklists. Um, yes, I can see where it gets tedious and monotonous because if you have a busy operation, perhaps you're taking off and landing every, you know, that cycle happens every 20 minutes or so, plus or minus, give or take, depending on how, what altitude you're going to and, and how many jumpers and a lot of different factors, weather, et cetera. Um, but if, if it's a smooth day, smooth operation, things are going quickly, um, you know, one flight kind of blurs into the next sometime and you really have to slow yourself down and make sure that you've gone through your checklist, make sure everything is set up correctly for each flight, have to treat each time you take off as a separate, I mean, it's a separate flight. It's not a continuation of the one from before, even if you didn't shut down, even if you just had new passengers get on. So for us, um, you know, the, the very basics of it in the caravan, making sure fuel 
uh, both tanks are on and then flaps are set at 20 and then trim settings. We have three trim settings. So elevator, aileron, um, rudder, and you have to make sure that those are set every single time. <laughs> Very critical. And that's part of the checklist. So if you do nothing else, those things every time. So why they weren't set for this particular flight, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, who knows, you know, if they were busy, fatigued, you know, some, it's, it's a very real thing where you go to perform an action and you think you've already done it because you've done it 14 times already that day. Um, and then you go, wait, did I do that this time or last time? That's the time to stop. Take an extra few moments, make sure everything is done correctly. You definitely want to slow yourself down in those situations. So, um, weight and balance wise, also super important, especially in these types of operations, because obviously, you know, you're trying to, um, maximize the capacity for, uh, the operation for a lot of reasons. You want to be able to take as many, um, jumpers as a safe to do so for the aircraft that the aircraft will allow. Um, not only because jumpers don't want to wait for the next load a lot of times, they want to go as soon as they can, um, but also for revenue, you know, um, but there's obviously a limit to that. You can't just, you know, load up as many jumpers as you think can fit in the airplane. You have to have very specific weight and balance calculations. Um, the way we do it, actually have a Excel spreadsheet. So we can plug in different fuel values. We can plug in different jumper values. We can plug in different weights for the, for the jumpers, for the pilot, all of those things. And it will do the, the math for you right then and there. So you don't have to spend a bunch of time writing it out pen and paper. And it makes it very easy. And we have designated space or designated seats where jumpers are to sit. Um, here in the U.S., you can use the for skydiving operations. You can use the floor as long as seat belts are available. So we have designated spaces on the floor and also on benches for our aircraft. And it's it's my responsibility to make sure people are in the right place for the weight and balance calculations. Well, this is turned into a very titillating conversation for uh, Liz because you mentioned spreadsheets. I, I did, yes. Yeah, so spreadsheet it. master. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting comment from I. Um, I Hall boxes makes a good point. And uh, so the uh, DHC2 Beaver is a tail dragger. He says, unfortunately, tail draggers suffer from these critical takeoff trim setting catastrophes. Um, consequently, insurance requirements and rates go up and they're disappearing from the scene. Um, I actually don't have any. I have very little, if any, tail dragger experience, but I... I a point well made there for my hall boxes. Yeah, I I found that uh, lately I've been eating so much that my tail's been dragging mm, on the ground. That's a weight and balance <laughs> issue. Yeah. It's yeah. really kind of hideous. But uh, <laughs> anyway, but it, you know, for Anders, uh, he was a little surprised that this was such an issue or as much of an issue for smaller aircraft, GA aircraft, and thought it was more of an issue for airliners. Now it's equally important across the board. Um, yep. And oftentimes those margins are smaller on smaller aircraft. So you really have to make sure that you've done the appropriate weight and balance calculations. Yes. Very, very important. And the checklists, as you mentioned. Steph. And checklists too. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, matter you know, sometimes if you fly several legs and I obviously don't fly anywhere near the number of flights that you fly in a, in a day's flying. Mm -hmm. Uh, but even, even with my three or four legs, uh, per day, you'll go, do we do the, do we you do the taxi checklist? checklist? Yeah. You're just yeah. like, well, I know I've done it at least three times. Like so I far did today. it, but <laughs> I, just, I do it for this particular segment. Right. That's when you stop and you go, doesn't matter. Let's just do We're going to do it again. Yeah. You know why it doesn't take that long to do. No. And you can't compromise that safety. Very true. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything? 
Anything else you wanted to add on that? Hopefully, uh, no, nothing uh, else to, for me to add on to that. You covered it perfectly, Steph. And Tim Van Ram I think, says something oh, here. Tim Van Ram wants to add something. Uh, knuckle draggers have similar issues. Well, thank you very much for that information. I feel and, like that was a personally directed and, comment. And I don't know. I'm, I, I think it's kind of unfair of uh, of Tim to talk about his brother Mark uh, when he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, yeah. let's uh, do the second audio that uh, Anders sent. Hey, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. This is Anders here again with uh, not a quick feedback, but I'm at it. And uh, this question is regarding uh, retired airliners. Um, I was flying the DC-8 in X-Plane the other day. And while I was flying it, I thought it was such a shame that I was too young to experience this aircraft in commercial service along with the 727, the L-1011, the DC-10 and other great airliners that are now long gone. And this brings me to a two-part more trivial question. Uh, One... Which retired airline would you like to see back in the air again? And two, which retired airliner do you think would have the biggest chance of being produced again if you take in factors like changing the um, building materials and avionics and etc. to modern standards? Thanks. Bye. Okay. Um, My two choices would be if I get two. Do I get two? You get one. Just one. Broadcast. I don't know. Have well, to. Sure. okay. We'll make, well, the, we'll make up the rules. You can my have first to. choice would be, but they're both um, three-engined airplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, would be the L ten eleven, the Lockheed TriStar, and then the second one, the Boeing seven twenty seven. And the problem is, regardless of what you make it out of, uh, in those two engines. airplanes, you still have three engines, and that's. That's a big problem. Even if they're super fuel-efficient engines, it's still not going to be able to compete with today's modern two-engined aircraft. And uh, I guess they could easily – well, not easily, but they could reconfigure the thing so you wouldn't have a three-position, uh, you know, like uh, captain, first officer, and flight yeah, engineer. Yeah, you might not need a flight engineer. Uh, you, could, you could, you know, modernize them so that everything is more automated as it is today as far as uh, systems and that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, still the the engine thing, I think, is the nut to crack, and I just don't think they can do it. I'd like to see the Concorde back. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Similar um, cost issues, I'm sure. But I don't right. know. There's everyone, you know, they're still talking about making new um, supersonic passenger aircraft. Mm-hmm. So it won't maybe be the, the Concorde, but it'll be something similar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if Captain Nick were here, he would be rolling over, laughing uh, on the on the floor. Uh, I hall boxes says the Boeing seven thirty seven. Oh no, wait, <laughs> yeah, seven thirty seven still here, <laughs> still here. And, and Bo has something to say. And Bo says fond memories of being a passenger on a seven twenty in uh, nineteen seventy seven, the medium range seven oh seven spinoff, and the DC eight around nineteen eighty six. Pressures of old age. Yeah. Um, now, now, Jeff, while we're talking yeah. about three-engine aircraft, mm-hmm. yes. go down to number 14 here. 14. We have a segue here. Okay. Since we're talking about, oh, okay, old uh, retired this was, aircraft. Uh, April 1st, uh, Delta put oh, this out. Interesting. And it was the 1st of April. Yeah, the 1st of yeah. April. Ding, 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 ding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert sent this in. He said, uh, well, look at this advertisement. It says, who let the dogs out? 
uh, MD-88 and MD-90 to return to service April 1st. Yes. Yes. Look at that beautiful yeah. airplane. Look at that. Gorgeous. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's April 1st. April Fool's. Wah, 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 wah. I'm oh. sure I got one of those. I had, the, I had the dinosaur costume all ready to go. Did you? That mm-hmm. would have been so funny. <laughs> anyway. Thank you, Robert, for that. Okay. What, what to do now? Uh, Jeff, because he was in the chat room, but I don't know if he's still there. Zeb yeah. was here. All right. And number 15 was his, if we wanted to cover Zeb. Yeah. Hey, Zeb, are you still here in the chat room? Hey, Zeb. Yeah. We'll he see was if just he, there. Uh, like, he was yeah, there not ago. long ago. And if he is, uh, we're going to do uh, number uh, 15. Uh, uh, come on, Zeb. You can do it. You can do it. Just take your fingers and on the keyboard and press press down. Y E S. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe he's what gone. What are you trying to do? <laughs> I'm trying oh. to tell Zeb how to uh, uh, do a do a text in the uh, in the chat room to let us know oh, that he's oh, still there. All he just needs to do is say hi. Yes. Yeah. I'm here. That's why I said Y E S. Yes. I don't know. Maybe Zeb's not here with us anymore. Maybe. I don't know. Is this thing working anymore? Hello? Are we on the air? Yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah. I mean, Tim keeps keeps messaging. You know what, Liz? When you told him that uh, we probably wouldn't get to his feedback today, he went, Well, nothing nothing left here for me to hear. I just said not sure. I didn't say no. I I know you didn't. I know. I saw what you put down there. And I I think he probably want to do something else first. And if he reappears, we'll probably do his feedback anyway. That's that's thinking there, Steph. Go back up to number four. Number four. So highly. Yes. Oh, Bride of Hot Mess. From the show. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's continue then with uh, this feedback from Paul. Uh, Good morning. I was listening to the most fantastic show on the Apple Podcast app this morning. Uh, I wonder which one that is. Oh, he's talking about us. And the show started up talking about an incident between two UPS aircraft in Portland, Oregon. Yes, the show was the APG show. Then for some random reason, I was reading AIM 4413 a few hours later. Okay. Uh, the AI aeronautical yes the information aeronautical manual. information manual at times a clearance may include the word immediate for example cleared for immediate takeoff in such cases immediate is used for purposes of air traffic separation it is up to the pilot to refuse the clearance if in the pilot's opinion compliance would adversely affect the operation if I remember right Nick Camacho brought up the clear for takeoff without delay ATC clearance. I thought this piece from the AIM was a nice addition to his part of the discussion. I admire all the knowledge you guys have and appreciate you taking the time to share. Fellow aviator, Paul Root. Thank you, Paul. Just so happens that uh, Paul likes to just thumb through his uh, aeronautical information manual, his AIM. Some light reading. Light reading every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I'm glad he did. And, uh, yeah, we were talking about the fact that there was a delay on the – not necessarily delay on the clearance for takeoff, but uh, the, a delay on actually getting the takeoff initiated by that one UPS jet and the other one had to go around. So, very, very good. Thank you for adding to the conversation, Paul. 
All right. Looks like uh, we haven't heard anything from no, Zeb. So Zeb's taking off. Zeb's thinking, oh, I'm out of here. Got better things to do than <laughs> sit here around and listen to these guys yap. Uh, and let's see anything else. I don't. How are we? How are we doing on the time list? Oh, you got lots of time. Uh, we're probably just coming up on an hour. Yeah. 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 We started. Well, you know what? I, I really hate to cut it short. I really don't hate to do that. Um, but um, I'm thinking that I'm going to need to go pretty soon. Okay. okay. Do you want to um, do one more? Maybe yeah. One let's more? do one more. What What would you like let's to do? do Let's see here. Oh, Liz is suggesting maybe uh, the feedback that we received from Greg Peterson. Number six. Uh, number six. Uh, oh, and yeah. it's kind of, you know, it's, this it kind ties of ties into what in. we were just talking about. Yeah. Sure does. Let's do it. Sure. Okay. Uh, g'day, APG crew. Oh, now he's from down under. Um, it's been a little bit since I've sent in some feedback with all those close calls and your misses lately. I thought this was an interesting article that you might want to cover on a future episode. And then he sends us a link to the avweb.com article. Also, I have some exciting news coming soon, which we've already talked about earlier in this show, actually. Uh, part one, we talked about his exciting news. He has a new job in aviation. And, uh, so there we go. So we're going to talk about the... Uh, article that he sent in from Avweb, uh, misheard mistakes. Uh, beyond separating and sequencing aircraft, air traffic controllers are responsible for managing expectations. When I'm working traffic, the person writing this article, I must ensure that uh, what each pilot expects to do uh, to be doing matches with what I expect him to be doing. Otherwise, it's like trying to act out a play when all the actors are reading from different scripts. Uh, that's where the read back slash hear back loop enters. By actively listening to pilots' responses to clearances and catching incorrect readbacks, controllers prevent potential errors before they occur. One undetected bad readback is often the thing that turns a safe operation into a frightening situation. Imagine I tell you, descend and maintain 4,000. You reply, descend and maintain 3,000. I missed this incorrect response and expect you to level at 4,000. Thinking you, you've been assigned 3,000, you descend into another aircraft already at that altitude, resulting in a dangerous conflict. That's on me for missing the readback. Why me and not you? Well, the rules say so. The Air Traffic Control Rulebook, FAA Order 7110.65, says this under 2-4-3, Pilot Acknowledgement Readback. Quote, ensure pilots acknowledge all air traffic clearances and ATC instructions. When a pilot reads back an air traffic clearance or ATC instruction, ensure that items read back are correct. And then in our uh, aeronautical information manual, AIM 4-4-7, pilot responsibility upon clearance. It says pilots of airborne aircraft should read back those parts of ATC clearances and instructions containing altitude assignments, vectors, or runway assignments as a means of mutual verification. The readback of the numbers serves as a double check between pilots and controllers and reduces the kinds of communication errors that occur when a number is either misheard or is incorrect. Let's note one grand distinction. The pilot's responsibility is listed in the AIM, which is more of a best practices document as opposed to regulatory. It says a pilot should read back. The ATC uh, manual, uh, FAA Order 7110.65, is a regulatory document and doesn't leave room for ambiguity. ATC must, not should, ensure all readbacks are correct. We are supposed to fix any problems. Uh, 
So what could be the result of a mistaken reback? We've already mentioned altitude. What about routing? Imagine an airline pilot at Miami International Airport calls for their clearance. Clearance delivery issues them cleared to destination via the Hurricane 2 departure Capasa transition then is filed. The pilot reads back, cleared to destination Hurricane Capasa as filed. That reback should be raising some red flags. The two in the Hurricane 2, I guess Hurricane to standard departure mm-hmm. uh, is missing, of course, and he left off the word transition after Kepasa. If we go by this readback alone, his cleared route goes directly from the airport to Hurricane, the waypoint itself, then direct to Kepasa. To him, the SID doesn't exist. Per his readback alone, he won't overfly the numerous fixes between the airport, Hurricane, and Kepasa, or, or comply with any of the SID's altitude restrictions. It's clearance's responsibility to correct him, per the 7110.65. Also, all ATC communications are recorded. If that aircraft takes off, it goes directly to Hurricane instead of flying the Hurricane 2 departure, and its unexpected maneuvers puts him in conflict with another aircraft or airspace, the investigation will place blame on clearance for not fixing it before the airplane left the ground. So the clearance delivery controller corrects him with some extra emphasis. Verify routing, cleared to destination via the hurricane to departure capacity transition then as filed if it's at this point i wish everyone would check their ego yes i know we're talking about aviators and air traffic controllers here i've seen some pilots pull a captain snappy when a controller calmly corrects them taking it personally when it's just part of our job certain controllers could be more patient too with a pilot that could be on his umpteenth short haul flight of the day If you're a new pilot in training, working on your instrument rating, perhaps after you're reading this, you're thinking the pilot was probably going to fly the Hurricane 2 and K-Posit transition anyway, right? Ask yourself, can you listen to that read back above and say with absolute certainty that he he would fly this assigned route? You can't. I've seen too many unexpected situations to take that chance. Anyway, so it continues. I'm not going to read the entire thing. I've read most of it already, but mm-hmm. it's a really good. No, article. I mean it, it continues to make very similar points about how these things things happen, and I think the point really is the reason for that. Um, the way communications happen, it's not just you're given an instruction by ATC and you go, okay. You have to give positive. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. Feedback. Yeah, you got it. We'll do it. No, you have to actually say back what it is that you're going to do. That way you have confirmation and you can close that communication chain. And that way there's more chances to catch errors in understanding or interpretation. Okay. Very good. Zeb showed up. Zeb is here. Wow. I'm here uh, on a flight. Sorry for the delay. Oh, okay. Um, Well, you know what? Should we let it go? Should we go ahead? Yeah, I think we'll give him a pass. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll go ahead and play it then. Uh, that was number, f- which one? 15. 15. Okay, thanks. Here we go. Here is some audio feedback from Zeb, who is currently in flight as we record the show. Hey, ABG crew. Zeb Dawson here. Longtime listener, first time caller. I uh, had a quick question, and I'm not sure if anybody on the crew is really able to answer this because I'm not sure that uh, anyone does flight simulator type training, but maybe there's a listener in the audience that could help me out here. I'm looking at uh, doing some flight simulator in-home practice just to prepare for the real world. So I want something that says similar to what it would experience in an actual aircraft. And um, I looked at, it looks like Microsoft Flight Simulator and X-Plane. X-Plane looks like the way to go. 
but I just like some feedback on that. And the second question I have is, should I use monitors or is it worth looking at using a VR headset? Because with the controls, does the VR headset not really work? So just kind of curious if anybody has an experience on this. If uh, if so, great. If not, no worries. I'm going to keep doing my research. But I uh, just want to say, hey, really appreciate everything that everybody does. Um, really look forward to uh, listening to the podcast all the time. So keep up the great work and hope to see some of the folks in person sometime soon. Take care. Thanks. We hope so too, Seb. And uh, mm-hmm. great, great uh, question. Unfortunately for uh, for me, uh, I'm going to be completely worthless in my. I have no response. Basically, I don't know. I uh, have to defer to people that know more about flight simulators than I. Yeah, between the two um, programs, I I don't know. Um, interesting thought though. I hadn't really thought about using the uh, VR headsets for flight simulator stuff before. I guess it depends on what you're trying to do with the flight simulator. Um, so here's my ignorance. I don't, I don't really know what all that encompasses, but I'm just thinking about if you're trying to set it up like an actual, you know, flight deck layout where you've got, you know, something that's your screens that simulate what you're seeing outside and you've got, um, uh, some basic controls that you can actually physically manipulate. If you're wearing the VR headset, do you see that? Like when you move your head around or is that, um, remove that from part of the experience i'm just not sure i don't know yeah i think you know he did obviously anticipate that we may not be able to uh, we uh, co-hosts may not be able to give him a definitive answer and but he did appeal to the uh, corporate knowledge of this amazing community of apgers and uh, so we're going to put that out there to our listeners. And right now, I haul boxes in our live audience says, I hear VR works great on DCS. DCS? What's DCS? I don't know. <laughs> on DCs. So if you're yeah. uh, flying on the DC-9, I District guess they work Columbia great. No, I don't. <laughs> District of Columbia Senators? No, I don't think that's it either, Liz. Um, <laughs> Uh, Laura Davis says, I know Armando from PTUK has used VR for practicing in the past for the instrument rating stage. Huh. Well, that's digital that's a- digital combat sim. Oh, digital of combat course. sim. Yeah. Well, why didn't well, we know that? I don't know. So <laughs> Sorry, we don't know the lingo there. Apparently not. Yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, and I think that the reason why uh, Liz loves this particular audio feedback is that she knows that this is going to generate all kinds of feedback which is yeah, awesome exactly. so uh yeah if you're out there you're a pc simmer it. and you know about uh the uh the, the microsoft um flight sim and what was and the other X-Plane. one the x-plane and uh and or any VR others and, and vr that. and monitors you know versus the good and bad versus whatever uh just send us some feedback we yeah, would we'll certainly it appreciate it all right. Okay, that's With it. that, uh, yeah, I'm going to uh, go ahead and have to call it quits here today because I'm uh, singing. I'm singing. In something that I've never done before. It's called The, the, the Last Seven Words of Christ. And uh, it's basically, I think I have like three solos. And oh, wow. um, yeah, it's uh, and like stuff I've never actually sung before. A little, I'm actually a little nervous about this. So, that's all right. That, um, that's good. That, those, uh, you know, that little jittery anticipation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, pretend you're one of those guys up on stage last Saturday night. I, oh, that's a good idea, Liz. She said for me to pretend that I'm one of those uh, 
guys, those uh, professional soloists on stage at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra concert that I went to last Saturday night. So, um, yeah, I'll do my best to uh, mimic their performance. Anyway, so uh, with that, uh, let's point you over to our website, airlinepilotguy.com, and uh, there you'll find information about the crew, the community, the, uh, well, the calendar is really not much uh, help right now because uh, I haven't been able to put my schedule on there since I don't know it. Um, and uh, But anyway, uh, lots of good stuff there. Just check out our website, airlinepilotguy.com. We are also on social media. And Liz, uh, Liz Steph is going to tell us all oh, I thought you were going to give me the week off from having to do the social media. No, 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 no. Given no, no, Liz's no. new responsibility. You and Liz are going to do uh, that for Oh, everybody. okay, okay. Oh, okay. So we are on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Also Twitter at APG crew and Instagram uh, APG crew. If you're looking for our individual Twitter information that is pinned to the top of our main page there as well. Um, yeah. So just real quick tie in here. That last feedback we did from Zeb, he says he's on the APG Slack if anyone has any more input or feedback. Huh? So perhaps now would be a good time for Hillel to tell you all how to join Slack. Slack. Oh, well, good segue. Steph. What the heck is Slack? But let's see if uh, this Hillel guy knows something about it. Hey, Hillel, can you tell us about Slack? I know. I mean, like every week, it's the same thing. Now come on over here. Don't get water all over everything. Tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at Slack at AirlinePilotGuy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right. Thank you, Hillel, for that. And very crazy. All right. Well, let's just pretend that nothing went wrong and wish you... Clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine 
alive.